click, pay, and download instantly. Welcome to the podcast. You know, getting into adulthood, there were many things as an adult that I was always putting off. And looking back, I got very lucky because there are some things that I put off that I shouldn't have. For example, creating life insurance, right? If something were to happen, I don't want the burden of a debt or a house or anything to fall on my partner or or my kids even. So, you know, on that note, it's a relief to know that life insurance, especially term coverage, exists, right? And it's surprisingly affordable. So why not pay a bit each month to protect the ones that you love? If you're asking yourself this question, you wanna make it easy for yourself to get it set up, check out Ladder. You know, they make it impressively fast and easy to get covered. Just in a few minutes with a phone or a laptop apply, they have smart algorithms at work so that you can find out instantly if you're approved. No hidden fees, and since life insurance costs more as you age, now's the time to cross that off your list just like I recently did. So check out Ladder today to see if you're instantly improved. Go to ladderlife.com slash SPI. That's L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash SPI. Once more, ladderlife.com slash SPI. This may, in fact, be one of the most important episodes of any podcast, if you are a business owner, that you could ever listen to. Because as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, whether you're just starting out or you have been doing this for a while, you come up with ideas. Some of those ideas are great. Some of those ideas are not so great. But the ideas that you know are great and perhaps were validated, you need to know how to actually put it out there in the world. And I'm not talking about strategies specifically like email or advertising or anything like that, but the idea itself, the idea itself being able to spread on its own, like many ideas and things that we pass on ourselves to others, how do we take our ideas and put them into the spectrum that allows us to spread? This is the big idea of this particular episode today. So I hope you enjoy this because this is this is on the level of made to stick from Chip and Dan Heath to outliers from Malcolm Gladwell. But today, instead, it's from Jeff Goins from goinswriter.com, a great friend of mine, somebody who I've known for over a decade now, who has helped me with my book writing. He's actually been on the show before, and he's here today to help us all out. So if you're looking to create ideas that spread on their own, this is for you. Here we go. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now, so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, he's a huge Harry Mack fan, yeah, that's right. The best coincidence is they both share the mic, Pat Flynn. What's up, everybody? Pat Flynn here, and welcome to episode 499. Wow, that's right, we are one episode away from the Milestone 500th episode here on Smart Passive Income. Woo, thank you. Thank you so much for helping us get here, but more on episode 500 next week. This week, we're talking with Jeff Goins from goinswriter.com. Like I said, how to get your idea out there and how to have that idea be something that spreads. This is so helpful if you're writing a book, if you're creating a course, you're writing a blog post, you want to capture people's attention, but you don't want it to be so absurd that people skip over it or don't believe it but you want it to be great enough for people to talk about it with others. How do we fit that in? Where do we even begin? Well, let's get into it. Here we go. This is Jeff Goins. Jeff, welcome back to the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Thanks for being here today, man. 
Hey, Pat, how quickly can you say smart passive income? Smart passive income. Oh, dude, did you really? <laughs> smart passive income. Smart, smart passive. Man, you got me. You said that so fast. Yeah, smart, smart passive income. Those are hard consonants to go together. I'm doing great, man. Thank you for having me. It's so good to be here and, and see you. I've learned a lot from you lately about beard maintenance. Yes, you and I both having beards. For those of you listening, you can just imagine both of us with beards. And it's not something we've always had. So new life for both of us. Moving on up. We are. And, you know, it's been a while since you've been on the show. The last two times we've talked about book marketing strategies. And we're going to talk about that again today. But, you know, not just for books, but for anything in general. And we want to talk about how do we create something that is such a big idea that it'll, like you've described to me before, if it's at the bookstore, it'll it'll get people to stop and go, wait, what? And then start to pick it up and go deeper into it. Or if you have an online course, for example, wait, wait, hold on a sec. I need to read further into this because this is something that either matters to me very much or is different. And so before we get into the big idea and how to find your big idea and what that actually means, give us a quick update on your business and books and where you're at. What do you got going on on your end? Well, 2020 was a ride. I went through a lot of personal upheaval. I went through a divorce. The world shut down. I got really into cooking and walking and poetry and bearding, growing a beard. I kind of had to like crawl into a cave for a little while and figure out what I wanted to create, what I didn't want to create coming out of that cave now. And one of the things that I want to keep doing and do better and do at a deeper level is this work that we're doing with you and, and a handful of other people where we're working with thought leaders to help them turn their big ideas into best-selling books. And so we're doing that through ghostwriting, editing, writing book proposals. And that was a thing. That's one of basically three businesses or business units that I have right now. And in, in some ways, it's the most exciting, although I'm excited about everything that I'm doing, because for the first time in my business life, I've been working for myself for about 10 years now, this would be year 10, I think, is I always felt like I kind of had to hustle and strive. And this has been such a weird experience. And I mean, we're basically running this, this agency where it's me and a small team of, of people writing books for people. Like I didn't market myself. I didn't try to do this. It started with my friend Grant Baldwin and a publisher calling me saying, hey, do you know anybody who wants to write a book? And I said, well, maybe Grant. And I sent it his way. And he said, I don't want to write a book. I only do it if you write it for me. And he was joking. And I was like, well, I'll do it if you pay me this much money. And, and it was, I was like, hey, let's just split what the publisher pays us. It was really simple. And he was like, okay. And I was like, okay. And that's how I became a ghostwriter. It's been really interesting because it's, I just, I remember in kind of like the online course, you know, launching kind of paradigm, I just felt like I got exhausted from that after a while. You know what it's like. It's like, you know, we did a $100,000 launch. We did a $350,000 launch, you know, and it, well, let's do a million dollar launch. And it was always like trying to top the last thing. And that uh, I've learned is, is not actually how most long-term healthy, sustainable businesses operate, which is like feast or famine, go big or go home. You end up spending some time creating a really great product and then finding a way to consistently market and sell that product to a certain group of people who need or want that product or service for a long, long time. All that to say that this new business that I've started, and I'm still selling online courses, 
and writing and speaking myself. So those are kind of the three businesses. Your books are still available, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so I'm, I create content, free and paid content. So that could be a book, a podcast or whatever. Getting back into that after kind of taking a hiatus, I haven't written a book in several years now. The ghostwriting business, I've been writing books for other people. Uh, my team and I have been doing that. And, and we're also, like you mentioned at the beginning of this show, working with people to help them not just create books, but bestseller products, whether that's a book, a course, whatever. Focusing primarily on books right now, but as you mentioned, it applies to anything. I'm excited to talk about that. And then, you know, doing the course thing, doing the info product thing, selling online courses, doing some events and things like that as, as things start to open up. I share all that about the ghostwriting business because that for me is kind of a metaphor for my life and, and what I want my life to look like right now, which is I felt for so long that in order to succeed at something, you had to strive. You had to kill yourself. You had to sacrifice certain values or principles like you couldn't have it all. You had a great quote when we were chatting about my project that you're working on, which you know was basically, uh, gosh, I, I should have written it down. You can probably remember it. You can have it all. Oh, here's what you said. You just can't do it all. No, no, no. Oh, oh that's so good. I was going to say it. You've ruined it. <laughs> that's right. Hey, well, you got me on this smart passive income thing, so we're even now. I don't know if that came to you in that moment, if that's been a thing you've been saying for a while, but you can have it all, but you just can't do it all. It was actually a guest from this podcast. Who said that? A woman who was on a guest on the show who has nine kids. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so all that to say, it's a really curious thing that's happening to me right now in both personal life and professional life, which is maybe it doesn't have to be so hard. Maybe you can live your life in flow. Maybe you can do what only you can do and you're not going to go broke doing it. You're not going to struggle. And, and obviously there's hard work and, and all of that, but I'm experiencing that in ways that are kind of blowing my mind because for so long I thought you had to suffer a long time in order to make anything good happen in your life. And it's like, suspicious to me how easy certain things are coming to me. It scares me, frankly, but I'm enjoying the ride. I mean, that's great. I mean, new things opening up. And yeah, that quote, you can have it all, but you can't do it all. Lisa Canning, episode 452. Jeff, let's talk about if you're going to write a book, how do we know what to do to approach it in a way that we know it's going to, to rock people's worlds? And this is an exercise that you brought to me. You're helping me with potentially a proposal. We're determining at this moment in time whether or not we should go traditional or self-published on this third book of mine or fourth, actually, but third business style book. Where do we even begin? How do we know that the approach we're taking is one that's actually going to turn people's heads? And why is that important? My whole life, I've been making things. I consider myself an artist, a maker, a creative, a creator, whatever word you want to use, a musician, writer, poet, speaker, all, all the things. And so I always wanted to make stuff and get it in front of people. I didn't just want to make things for the sake of making things. I wanted to make things that connected with people, that transformed them or entertained them or inspired them. That was always the most gratifying experience, whether I was acting in a play or my band was performing or I wrote a book that somebody read and enjoyed. The feedback has been really important to me. My first job out of college really was my first real job was as a marketer working for a nonprofit. And I learned about marketing without trying to, without wanting to. I thought marketing was evil and bad. And and I learned from Seth Godin. I mean, I 
my boss didn't have a budget to, he's like, you're the marketing director. I was the only person in the marketing department in this nonprofit organization. He's like, go, you know, do the, grow these things. If anybody listening has worked in the nonprofit industry, they understand that because everybody's wearing lots of different hats and doing, you know, um, multiple jobs at the same time. My boss said, here, read this blog by Seth Godin, you know, like just read this and this is your marketing education. And it was. And Seth says that ideas that spread win. Ideas that spread win. And one of his earliest books, a book called Purple Cow, he says basically ideas that spread are ideas that are remarkable, meaning people are talking about them. And he uses that term remarkable literally, like people are remarking on it. It is able to be remarked on. So as a creator, as a person who makes things, and as somebody who started to get educated in marketing, when I started writing my own books, which is something I always wanted to do, I was like, how do I get these out into the world? And even when I started a blog and a personal platform, it was like, how do I do this? How do I succeed at something that other people are doing that, uh, you know, think about writing a book. It's a very noisy space right now. Anybody can write a book. Anybody can, you can write two words on a Microsoft Word document, upload it to Amazon KDP, which is their self-publishing tool. And you could have a book published, like an ebook published, like tomorrow. I mean, anybody can do it. And so the question is, how do you do this well? Or how do you do it in a way that stands out and allows you to achieve the, the goal that you want to achieve with, with this book or product or whatever? What I've learned is um, if ideas that spread win and what it takes to get an idea to stand out is that it's got to be unique, there's an art and a science to this. And uh, a sociologist named Murray Davis wrote a paper in 1975 or something. Uh, maybe it was 1971. I was amazed when you remembered the interview number of uh, Smart Passive Income. People have asked me about that episode before, which is why I don't, I used to remember them all like when it was 200, but after 200, just my brain is like, oh my God, yeah. are you crazy? That's incredible. I'm like, it's on the internet somewhere. Just Google this, you know? But Murray Davis says this. He's a sociologist. He wrote a paper for the nerds here. And I, I love some good old scholastic nerdism, some academia. The paper is called That's Interesting, a Phenomenology of Sociology or Towards a Phenomenology of Sociology. Super fun words there. You can Google it. Murray S. Davis. That's interesting. But in that paper, he essentially says that we don't follow leaders because their ideas are good or even because their ideas are true. We follow leaders because their ideas are interesting. And interesting is anytime you challenge what your audience takes for granted. You attack their assumptions. But here's the art to it. You can't just go around disagreeing with people. That's, that, that's often just like, you're just being controversial. You're like a teenager. That's wrong. You know, it's like, all right, okay, cool, right? Let's have an adult conversation about this. Like that's, that's actually not winsome. It's not compelling. If you just go around and go, the sky is red. You know, it's like, well, no, it's not. We can see. Yeah, that's just annoying versus interesting. Right. So there is a spectrum when you think about your idea and everything begins with an idea. A book doesn't become a bestseller just because it's a well-written book. That's We kind of take that for granted. It has to be a well-written book, but that's not enough. And I learned this the hard way by writing what I think is my best book, my third book, third book. I, I, I lose track of you know what number two. And it was the best written book. It was a memoir and it sold poorly. It was the worst selling book, best written book. Why does that happen? Well, part of it was because I didn't know how to talk about it. And if I don't know how to talk about it as the author, 
what hope do I have of other people spreading the word about it? And word of mouth is still the most effective way to sell a book and the hardest to like figure out how do I get people to talk about this? I have no control over it. Well, sociology, Murray S. Davis teaches us how to do this by looking at uh, religious leaders, political leaders, business leaders, authors, what we call thought leaders now. And he wrote this paper, which basically says, how do you do this? Well, there's an art to it. On one end of the spectrum, you have what's called absurd. These are notions that people immediately reject outright. So if I go, the sky is red, you go, well, of course not. I can see that it's not red. And so on one end of the spectrum of ideas, you have absurd. People reject the absurd. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the obvious. People ignore the obvious. They forget it. So on one hand, they reject the absurd. On the other hand, they ignore the obvious because it's obvious, right? We took it for granted. And um, we've all gotten good advice that was true that we ignored. Hey, if you want to get in shape, do this. Well, of course I know that. And because I know that, it doesn't stand out in my brain. It's not memorable. It's not remarkable. I don't so much forget it as I just don't pay attention to it. And so ideas that spread, that are remarkable, need to be interesting. And so in order for something to be interesting, it's got to be familiar enough that people go, okay, I kind of get that. And unique enough that it stands out from what everybody else is saying. And so the art of interesting is finding an assumption that your audience has, that they take for granted, and then challenging that in a way where people go, that sounds crazy, but it could be true. So for example, the ketogenic diet is an example of that. You and I are around the same age. We grew up in the 80s and 90s, watching Back to the Future, of course. Gonna go see that this week in the theater because they're bringing back all the all the movies. It's in, in my local theater. And... Uh, <laughs> And and I grew up in the 90s. There was no butter in our house. There was only margarine because fat was bad for you. And every box of like Triscuits or whatever, you know, was in the, the cabinet. It was all fat free. It was like low fat, low fat, low fat. Like that was the diet, right? You had Atkins. You have keto. These are diets that have taken off, not because of the science behind them. This is really important. Anybody who's studied the work of like Dan Ariely, Predictably Irrational, you understand that we make decisions emotionally and then we justify them rationally. So when you hear about something like the keto diet or even the Atkins diet, which preceded it, it's very similar. It's like, and the keto diet is especially exciting for somebody who has been told their whole life, fat is bad, fat is bad, fat is bad, fat is bad. And you know, you start putting on some weight at 35, 40, 45, whatever. And somebody goes, you can eat butter and bacon all day long and you'll be healthy, you'll lose weight. Fat doesn't make you fat. That diet succeeded, not because it was true, but because it was interesting. There was a, a study done not too long ago of all of the diets, all like well, like the top like five big eating styles, right? So you've got low carb, high fat, you've got you've got plant-based, uh, maybe paleo was on there that might have fallen into low carb, I can't remember. But there's like five like big diets. And it was a two-year study done. And basically the results were the same. If you did the diet, and you stuck to that diet, whatever it was, it worked. So I've read the articles about, you know, keto and, and it's interesting. And I, I, I use a lot of it in my life, you know, slow carb, all that stuff. The point is not whether or not it works. The point is that idea spread because it was 
interesting enough that it caught people's attention and they tried it. Then they experienced results and they continued with it. This is what your idea needs, whether it's a book, a course, whatever. It needs to be so ridiculous that people don't want to believe it, but they're, but, but they want to believe it. You know what I'm saying? Like that can't be true, but could it be true? So if absurd is the sky is red and obvious is the sky is blue. Interesting is, did you know, Pat, that when you and I look at the same sky at the same time because of how our brain chemistry works and, and the ocular nerve and your experience with the color blue and my experience of the color blue, we're actually seeing completely different colors and we have no way to talk about it. That sounds a little bit interesting, right? Kind of mind-blowing, actually, and I want to go deeper and figure this out. I know, and I don't even know if that's true. That's the point. That's marketing. That's innovation. Innovation is actually taking an old, familiar concept and making it new. Innovation. Innovate. Make new, right? You're taking something old and you're making it new. The iPhone is the best-selling product of all time. Last I checked. There's nothing new about it. There was nothing new about it. But what do you have? We had digital cameras. We had cell phones. We had like PDAs, devices that we could use to check the internet. We had all those things. Touchscreens. They had touchscreens. What did the iPhone do? It took all these things and combined it into like one beautiful package that just worked. When you think about the thing that you want to create, you have to start with what's the category? What's the convention? Where do we begin? And then how do I be different enough that it's not obvious, but familiar enough that it's not absurd. And that's, a, that's an art form. We can, we can talk about that if you want. Yeah, I mean, I would love to definitely explore that. I think this is even more important in the realm of the marketing of the book, not just like capturing people's attention, but the ability for word of mouth to actually transpire. I mean, it's not worth talking about unless it is something interesting. You don't want to share something obvious with somebody because then they're going to say, well, yeah, I already knew that. And you don't want to share something absurd with somebody because they're going to say, you're ridiculous. I don't believe you. But when you say, hey, did you know that this morning I woke up at 4 a.m., I did six things within 15 minutes, and I have more energy than I've ever had before, a la the Miracle Morning, then people talk about it, they do it, they share the results, and then people pick up the book and they do it, they share the results, and then all of a sudden this book kind of markets itself. And we've had Hal on the show before to talk about how he didn't even know he was building in that middle ground between something absurd but not obvious but makes you talk like really like if you wake up before anybody else and you do these six things like your life's going to change and it's changed people's lives including my own imagine an idea a concept that you have something that you want to share with the world and find a way to make it too good to be true and then somehow still true because that is an enduringly great idea. Now, you have plenty of people on the internet who are just being controversial for the sake of being controversial. They're saying things that they can't prove and that will get attention. It just does. That might win you an election or two. You know, like you can get a lot of attention for a short amount of time saying things that sound crazy. You disagree with any assumption that a certain group of people have, period. There's gonna be another group of people that go, well, that could be true. We saw that in many ways this past year more than we ever have before. Do masks work? Do they not? Is this thing real? Is COVID real or is it not? You know, and you have one group of people go, that's right now. People are listening going, that's absurd. Of course it was real. And you have another group of people going, no, I kind of believe this or, or this, 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 and this. Conspiracy theories, 
urban legends and big campaigns, marketing campaigns, best-selling products, they all succeed, not because they're true, but because they're interesting. Now, I don't want a bunch of people listening to this go like, oh, I'm just going to go like exploit this. And make up some stuff. Yeah, but you could. And so why do I share this? One, you should be aware of how you you are being manipulated, whether or not you realize it, how these factors are, are happening inside of you and why you believe the things that you believe or buy the things that you buy and talk about the things that you talk about. It's because they're interesting. That is what hooks us. Malcolm Gladwell is a great example of this. You've heard this. Now I tell you this, you know, Jesus started a religion doing this. Gandhi toppled the British Empire doing this. Martin Luther King Jr. changed the way the civil rights movement was happening in America by doing what? By doing something other than what was expected. If everybody's doing this, you do this. Now, here's the thing. Disagreeing with a group of people, period, is going to be somewhat interesting. But if you base it in fact, in truth, like in results, now you've got an enduringly great idea. So it's one thing to be interesting. It's another thing to go, this actually helps people and there's data to support it. There's going to be longevity to that. But the thing that I'm really passionate about is most people that you and I come across actually have pretty good ideas. They want to help other people. They want an online course or a book or whatever. And they know it's going to help people. And their ideas fail because they haven't taken the time to translate them from good to interesting. So let's translate an idea from good to interesting. What's the exercise to do that? As I mentioned before, you start with a category. Let's talk about books because I learned this the hard way by writing what I thought was my best work and seeing it fail. And that broke my heart. I've been doing this for years, right? I've been selling online courses and reading marketing books. And then I, I put the artist hat on. I put the artist beret on and I went into the, the closet and tried to make something. I thought, if I make this good enough, it will succeed on its own. And then I was like, I'm going to make it and then try to market it. And this is what most people do with books and, and products, period. They make it and they market it. The genius of Steve Jobs and the genius of Apple even today is they bake the marketing into the product itself. This goes back to Seth Godin, Purple Cow. How do you make it remarkable? Don't make an ordinary thing and then try to sell it. Make an amazing thing and then just launch it, right? And, and there's practical things to do. But I was working on a book and I was working with Ryan Holiday whom I'm sure you know. And he said to me something I never heard before. And I've been writing books for years at this point. He said, um, once the book is done, the marketing is over. And that has really stuck with me. And that's the approach that I take when I work on my own stuff and when I help other people like yourself take something good and make it interesting. So how do you do that? You start with category. Let's use a book, for example. What kind of book is this? What is it like? That's question number one. What is it like? What's the category? Uh, and you go as deep and as niche as you possibly can without being so obscure that nobody's going to care about it. And that's, that's an art form too. It's an, an intuitive process. But nonfiction or fiction is not deep enough. Like this is a, this is a personal development, nonfiction, big idea book like Adam Grant, Malcolm Gladwell. You know, like that's a category. What is it like? And one of the easiest ways to think about it, whether it's a course or a book or whatever, is think of three to five books, for example, three to five comps, comparable books or products or whatever. We're going to stick with books because it's easy. Five books that this book is like. And then read those books, study them. You don't actually have to read all of them, but like 
Go get them at the library, at Amazon. Have an experience with them. When I first wanted to launch an online course, I realized I'd never taken one. As silly as that sounds and as obvious as it is, we see a lot of people, you see this, I see this, in the world of online marketing who want to do things for other people that they've never done for themselves or received from other people. This actually reminds me, I was listening to an episode of SPI before you and I were even friends. And I mean, this is back in the day. I remember where I was, I was in my backyard. I just started writing books, but I hadn't taught any courses. And you had Ramit Sati on the show. And Ramit said, don't go sell a $5,000 online course if you haven't taken a $5,000 online course. Because how do you know what a $5,000 product looks like? And I remember thinking I wanted to teach a little blogging course for $99. And I'd never taken, I never spent $100. You know, I made $30,000 a year. And then I started my online business. I wasn't taking online courses. This was 2011. And so I immediately went and found Corbett Barr's blogging course. And I, and I bought his course. Traffic School, was it? It was um, Start a Blog That Matters. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> that is back in the day. <laughs> and I was like, deep breath, $99, here it goes. But people do this all the time. They want to write a book without having read or even looked at three to five books that their book is like. Start with the category. Study what has come before you and then see if there are some rules that all of these books follow. Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, even Tim Ferriss, that's an easy kind of genre to play with because basically what you have is you've got people taking data and research and practical tips, and then they tell really interesting stories around it. That was an innovation, you know, that, that in many ways Gladwell didn't invent, but he popularized and codified it. So you start with a category, what are the rules, and then find a rule to break. There's this scene in Braveheart where William Wallace is like talking to the nobles and they're going off to battle. And he says, we're going to charge him. But when we charge him, you go left into the forest. And they go, why? And he goes, and let the English see you do it. The English are the enemy, Scottish versus the English. And he goes, let the English see you do it. And they go, oh, they think we run away. And he goes, exactly. And so they go disappear and then they flank him. This is how interesting ideas work. You have to do something that they don't expect and then surprise them. You've got to go, like you've got to go, go this way, right? And then come back. And, and a comedian once told me, here's how you tell a joke. You set the table, put a tablecloth on, a plate, napkin, wine glass, water glass, salad fork, this, this, this. You set the table, you get ready for a meal. And then you pull the tablecloth. That's a joke. You make me think one thing is going to happen and then something else happens. And a joke is when it's a delightful surprise. And a tragedy is when it is a terrible surprise. This is all an interesting idea is start with your category. What is it like? Then how is it different? You've got to understand the rules before you know which ones you're breaking. And here's the thing. It doesn't have to be radically different. If it's radically different, it's absurd. But 80-20, 80% same, 20% different. I want to write a personal development book. This is Malcolm Gladwell. I want to write a personal development book, self-help, whatever. I want, to, I want to write a marketing book. This is the tipping point as you're curious about marketing. But I want to write it as if it were a thriller novel you know, like an action story. And that's what his books are like. They're exciting stories. Without the stories, it's super boring research. 
here's here's the 10,000 hour rule, which is the study of deliberate practice. I've read that paper. It is not an easy read by K. Anders Ericsson. And so you've got to have something that's not just true, but that's interesting. What is it like? How is it different? Know the rules, break them, 80% same, 20% different. And then ultimately, I teach that you have to be able to say it in a sentence. The phrase, the formula to play with is everybody thinks X, but what's actually true is Y. Everybody thinks that big ideas lead to big change, but the truth is little things lead to big change. That's the tipping point. Going back to Murray S. Davis, his paper, that's interesting. He identifies a number of phenomena that are innately interesting. And some of them include when big is small or small is big. Anytime it looks like something small is happening over here, uh, this, this is what happened with COVID. Little virus over in China, don't have to worry about that. All of a sudden, it's, it's impacted the entire world. And here's the thing. Ideas spread before uh, viruses do sometimes. And so we, in 2020, were reacting not to a virus, but to the idea of the virus. And again, something becomes interesting when you think it's one way and it's something else. This is why you had different audiences, different groups of people thinking, this big thing is actually small. All of the reaction to something like COVID, and I'm sorry if this is like controversial, I just think it's fascinating how people respond to things. People are either going, oh, this thing that people think is a big deal is actually a small deal. Or this thing that people think is a small deal is a big deal. So when small is big or big is small, that's interesting. When good is bad or bad is good, that's interesting. That's keto. When what looks like chaos is actually order or vice versa. That's the plot of every heist movie you've ever watched. Oh, all this stuff's happening and it's a mess and George Clooney is now, you know, uh, in, in jail and they're going to lose. And then at the end of the movie, you realize, you know, in Ocean's Eleven, oh, that was the plan all along. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Do you have any personal examples from your own works that have taken on this? Everybody thinks like this, but instead, this is true. I started my blog and I want to say we both got into the online marketing space around the same time, but you came before me. I was following your blog. I was listening to your podcast, but I started my blog, this blog, because I've been blogging since 2006. I started in, at the end of 2010. I was a writer and I was reading marketing blogs. I was reading things like copy blogger and pro blogger. And, and I wanted to do this. Like I wanted to like become an author and work for myself and do all these cool things that I saw people doing. And I didn't know how to do it. And what I realized was I was reading a bunch of marketing blogs like copy blogger. And I was like, oh, like this is for like copywriters and people that understand marketing. And then I would read a bunch of um, writing blogs, like uh, Daily Writing Tips. Remember that blog? Daily Blogging Tips. And I was like, oh, these groups of people are not talking to each other. And I represent the intersection between these two groups of people, meaning bohemian, purist, artisty kind of writers, like a writer's writer. I love good writing. I've, I've been writing my whole life. And I was reading blogs about that and I realized these people don't understand marketing. They don't know how to build a platform, yada, yada, yada. And so I was also reading a lot of marketing blogs because I was a marketer. That was my job as a marketing director of a nonprofit. I thought, well, I'm going to be the writer who talks about writing and marketing. I'm going to talk about how to promote yourself and build your own platform, but I'm going to do it from the perspective of your writing doesn't have to suffer as a result of it. And as far as I could tell at that time, nobody was really doing that. There were a lot of like, what does Ray Edwards call it? You know, the, the highlighter and, and like red underlining kind of 
marketing, long form sales letters, very aggressive launches. And it was like, you know, I was kind of a nice guy, you know, didn't want to like beat the crap out of my audience to get them to buy something. And so I brought this like nice guy energy. I was talking about marketing and I was doing it from the perspective of somebody who really loved good writing. And I was seeing on the internet, because I was experiencing this as a reader, I was seeing like the implication that you had to choose, meaning you either had to like successfully market your stuff or you had to, in my case, write things that you were proud of. And you couldn't do both. I wanted to basically say, yes, you can. And here's how. The lesson there is when you're not quite sure how to make it interesting, to take two things that are seemingly dissimilar and find a way to combine them. If you can't just disagree with whatever the, the status quo is, find a way to go, okay, it's like this, but different like that. And anytime you mash stuff up, it's really fun. And you can take an old thing and make it new again. That's another device. That's another tool that you can use. Old is new. That's the resurgence of stoicism right now. Is this Here's this 2,000-year-old philosophy that most people forgot about. I didn't hear about stoicism 20 years ago. You know, it wasn't on my radar. Now, because of people like Tim Ferriss, Ryan Holiday, it's a big deal. Again, it's not that these ideas are true. They could be true. But what makes it interesting is here's a really old thing that we're going to make new again. And whether or not it's true, people believe it. Make America Great Again, that's a great example of back then at some point, we're not really exactly sure when, and don't ask us what year, but like back then, things were better. That was a really interesting marketing campaign. How do you know that it's interesting? Because you always have two groups of people that are vehemently disagreeing with each other. Tim Ferriss said about the four-hour work week, he wanted people to go, this guy's full of crap because that meant they were talking about it. That's an interesting idea. For me, it makes me think of my origin story and when I started to learn about the position I could take in the internet marketing space, nobody was sharing how much money they were making online. And the ones who were, were doing it in a way that just was just genuine or made people wanna pay for money to get access to things. So I took the opposite approach. I mean, the question and the barometer I potentially could offer would be something like, well, why doesn't anybody blank? And if you're thinking that or if other people are discussing something that way, you can start to dig deeper. Why wasn't anybody sharing their income? What did they have to hide? Well, here comes Pat Flynn sharing everything, income, expenses, hiding nothing and making a name for myself and having people talk about it. And whenever I talk to people who found me back in the olden days and I go, well, what brought you to my website or what made you intrigued? It was like, dude, it was your income reports. Like nobody was doing that. I also think about the idea that many people who fit the profile of an internet marketer were male, traveling the world, more nomadic. Um, nobody was really talking about their family and having that be the reason why they wanted to see, succeed. It was always cars, money, travel, et cetera. For me, it was like, I just want financial security for my family. And here is my family. And here's who I'm rooting for and why I'm doing what I'm doing. Wh why are you doing what you're doing? And so I could relate to people in that way. And that was different. That was in a way kind of absurd. Oh, you just want to succeed online because you just want financial security versus travel, money, mansions, yachts. Yeah. Um, and that 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 is what enabled me to be noteworthy, remarkable, if you will. Yeah. If you want to stand out, you there's a few ways to do it. One is to just find out whatever the biggest, most successful person in an industry is saying and disagree with them. That will immediately get attention. You just will. And if you don't know how to do that, go use one of these tropes that we talk about. Old is new, new is old, big is small, small is big, et cetera. 
combine two things that are very dissimilar. And one of the ways you can do that is borrowing from another industry and then like breaking a golden rule. And you don't have to break all the rules, just like one or two of them. If there's 10 rules on how to be an internet marketer, what you can do, how to make money online, right? Like you can follow eight out of those rules and break one or two of them. And what I think you did was just that. It's like the assumption was everybody on the internet talking about marketing is lying a little bit. And so here's a guy who tells the truth so brazenly that he's going to publish his income reports unedited on his website every single month. It told people you can do this and here's kind of a no BS way to do it. And then the second thing was, here's just a dude who wants to take care of his family, you know, versus some random bro on, on the beaches of Bali being like, you too can live a good life, bro. You know, it's like, it could be true, but it's not interesting. And so um, if you're struggling, look at somebody succeeding somewhere else and go, can I take that formula and bring it into this this new space? For me, I was a writer and I saw that most writers sucked at marketing because they, like me, thought it was evil and wrong and you shouldn't do that. And so I understood marketing. So I was basically teaching online marketing to writers in a way that was trustworthy. You don't have to check your morality or your ethics or your artistic sensibilities at the door in order to get the attention that your writing deserves. And my first book was a self-published book. It was called You Are a Writer, So Start Acting Like One. That's a bold statement. And basically what I say in that book is if you call yourself a writer, you are one. And do you know how many people got pissed about that? Most writers that I know are like, you can't say that. You know? You're not a published author yet. Like you can't classify yourself as such. That is my best-selling book. It uh, has over a thousand reviews on Amazon. It's reached hundreds of thousands of people. And the person who told me that, because it wasn't even my idea, the person who told me that was Stephen Pressfield, who wrote The War of Art. I said, when do you get to call yourself a writer? He says, you are when you say you are. And so I took somebody else's idea and I gave him credit. And I wrote a whole book around it. And there's a group of people that think I'm full of crap. And there's another group of people that has changed their life. I mean, I, I ran an event, a workshop where somebody paid $2,000 to come hear me teach on these principles. And she told me about how she found this book. It was a self-published book on Amazon, Pat. She found this book in a bookstore, in a used bookstore in St. Louis. I don't, the book is not in bookstores. This is a self-published book on Amazon. You know how hard it is to get a book in a bookstore and keep it there. She found it in a used bookstore in St. Louis. She pulled it off the shelf. She looked at it and she immediately bought it. She was working this job, working in the cubicle. She read the book at work the next day. She literally stood up on her chair and said, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. She told this story at a workshop. Why do I care about books? And why do I care about interesting ideas? Because I've seen how an interesting idea, not just a good book, but an interesting idea that is also well expressed and is challenging certain assumptions that people have that are holding them back. When you challenge those assumptions and, and make them believable and interesting and people apply them, it changes their lives. Get up at 4 a.m. every day and do these things and it, it could change your life. You know, stop eating pancakes and just eat bacon, you know, and, and butter coffee every day for breakfast or whatever. It'll change your life. Fasting, that's happening right now. It's like we were told, like, if you don't eat, you're going to starve. And there's all this, you know, science about intermittent fasting and all this stuff. And it's like basically you're telling human beings this thing that you think you need to do all the time, which is eat to survive. You don't actually need to do that as much as you thought. Think about an assumption. Don't think about your idea. Think about an assumption. You want to help people? Think about what your audience assumes is true that's actually holding them back.
You want to help people. You want to have an enduringly great idea. Start with the problem. Start with what is the category? What are most people saying? How can you disagree with them in a believable, helpful, true way? And solve that problem over and over and over again. Now you've got a big idea. Now you've got an idea that can change the world, whatever that means to you. Perfect way to end the show. Jeff, thank you so much for coming in today. Where can people go get more help from you? Where do you want them to check you out? Thanks for having me, Pat. Always a pleasure. I always appreciate your indulgence and in letting me just riff for a long time. Dude, it's amazing. Thank you. Pat's like, this will be 30 minutes. I'm like, understood. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can find my website. Find me at my find me at my interwebs, um, goinswriter.com. G-O-I-N-S writer.com. Like coins, but with a G or groins without the R. Sorry for the imagery. That has stuck with me ever since middle school. You're welcome. Goinswriter.com, you can find all, the, all my books and, and things there. And if, if this resonates with you, if you have a big idea for a book, I want to challenge you or anything, but uh, we'll start with this. Everybody thinks X, but what's actually true is Y, right? Everybody thinks fat is bad for you, but the truth is fat doesn't make you fat. If you have an idea like that, I want to hear about it. Right? Like I, I would encourage you to email me. I don't know what you want to do about this, Pat, but I would love to see like hundreds or thousands or millions, I don't know, of ideas that people are working on because I believe that most people have good ideas. They just need to make them interesting. So if you have an idea like that, shoot me an email, jeff at goinswriter.com. I'd love to hear it and, and give you feedback. I mean, obviously, depending on how many people email me, I don't know, but I care so much about this because I do believe that most people have good, true ideas. They just need help getting them out into the world. And I'd love to help if I can. Jeff, thank you, man. Appreciate it. We'll put all that info in the show notes for everybody and appreciate you as always, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. All right, I hope you enjoy that interview with Jeff Goins, groins without the R. Thank you, Jeff, for that. I appreciate you for coming on and spreading so much wisdom here. And I highly recommend you check out any of Jeff's books. You can find them on Amazon, on his website. And just he just does such great work. We'll put all the links and everything mentioned here in the show notes, which you can find at smartpassiveincome.com slash session 499. Once again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash session 499. Cheers, thanks so much. And I look forward to serving you next week. Until then, here's to you your ideas, and your success. Peace out, and as always, Team Flynn for the win. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income Podcast at smartpassiveincome.com. I'm your host, Pat Flynn. Our senior producer is Sarah Jane Hess. Our series producer is David Grabowski. And our executive producer is Matt Gartland. Sound editing by Duncan Brown. The Smart Passive Income Podcast is a production of SPI Media. We'll catch you in the next session. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. Your home for live sport. Oh, and eventually it goes in. The best from the land. G'day, New Zealand. I'm Jamie Mackay. And the greatest hits. Gold AM. Streaming on iHeartRadio. Just search Gold AM. The biggest artist in music. 
and all their greatest hits. Gold, streaming everywhere on iHeartRadio. Just search Gold FM. The best of the country with Rabobank. Choose the bank with 120 years global agribusiness experience. Grow with Rabobank. Good morning, New Zealand. I'm Jamie Mackay. Welcome to the best of the country. Every Saturday morning between 6 and 7, this show is brought to you by Rabobank, the world's leading food and agribusiness bank. The gold bit is for Dame Lisa Carrington. It won't be long, will it? Look, we're going to have our keynote interview this week with Michael Every, Rabobank's Singapore-based global strategist. Look, this guy, it would be fair to say, is a bit of an alarmist. But the interesting thing was when I had an extended chat to him this week, he said, in a COVID world with many dark clouds on the horizon, New Zealand is well-placed to prosper with food at the top of the shopping list for many countries. You are really going to enjoy Michael Every a bit later in the hour, but we're kicking it off with Ray Grubb, chairman of Fish and Game New Zealand, commenting on why he reckons Roger Douglas got it wrong in the 1980s and why his organisation wants to work with farmers in the 2020s to clean up our waterways. Bit of a trip down memory lane with Ray Grubb. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern joined us on Wednesday's show. We pondered Dame Lisa Carrington, the latest poll, whether she's a pragmatist or a populist, her response to the groundswell protests. We haven't heard that much from her, if anything, on that. Opening the borders to RSE workers, a poll on New Zealand's name and whether... She was indeed an accidental PM, as one columnist suggested recently. Miles Hurrell, Fonterra's chief executive, also joined us on Wednesday's show. We had a look at another fall in the global dairy trade auction and asked whether that $8 milk price is looking increasingly under threat for the 21-22 season. Michael Avery, and we wrap it with Simon Bridges. Is he a man on the comeback trail? We'll ask him uh, towards the end of the hour. It's the best of the country, brought to you by Rabobank. Best of the country with Rabobank. Choose the bank with a huge network of progressive farming clients. Rabobank. Ray Grubb is the chairman of Fish and Game in New Zealand. We're going to talk about how that organisation is working, hopefully harmoniously, with farmers to improve water quality. But Ray, before we do, uh, you gave me some interesting feedback on a column I'd written in the New Zealand Herald, particularly to do with Roger Douglas and David Longy. Back in the day, and you've worn many uh, business hats over your career, you were a civil servant, I think a high-ranking one. Am I doing you a disservice there? They're not particularly civil, but certainly a servant. In the public service right at that time. Yeah, and you got out because you didn't like Douglas. 85, 1985. I could see what he was going to do. And you know, there were two, two avenues to do it. One was to do it progressively uh, and be socially conscious. And the other one was to be brutal. He chose to be brutal. The Aussies did the same thing over 30 years. But did Douglas have the right idea? He just went too hard and too early? Because if you go back one step further in history, you've got Rob Muldoon. Uh, History won't judge him very kindly at all as a Prime Minister. Well, that was the closest we ever came to a communist regime with uh, limits on borrowing and 
careless, oh, you know, all the nonsense that he got up to. Douglas did the right thing, I think, except that he opened up our economy when no one else had, which made us a bit vulnerable. If we'd been more progressive and negotiated a bit better, we might have had a better result. And Brian Easton's modelling unit at Victoria University took an alternative view uh, and I think showed pretty well that it could be done in a much more uh, successful fashion for the country. Ray, could you level the same criticism at the current government? They've got the right idea, but they're just going too hard and too early. I think that they've got to satisfy a whole number of conflicting demands within their coalition agreement, which is perhaps why we're seeing some of the things we're seeing at the moment. Uh, I, I think we can have confidence that their core ambition is supported by most of the farming community. Uh, the fresh water, cleaning it up, um, putting together catchment groups in a generation, making a change our grandchildren can be proud of and use the water for. But we can't rush all that. Uh, this is a generational thing, not an overnight, you have to do it tomorrow. I get the feeling that for David Parker, he's quite blinkered on this. I feel as though this is very much a legacy issue for him as a parliamentarian. I'm hearing rumours they could be totally uh, unfounded that he's got one more term left in Parliament and he wants to get out and he wants to leave his mark. I don't think uh, he's... Well, I, I know him reasonably well. I don't think he's blinkered at all. He's put a progressive regime in place which actually has some long-term ambitions. People are looking uh, a little too hard at some of the other things that are going with it. When you look at catchment groups and improving water quality, as I said before, we're, we're talking about a generation, and now that's not blinkered and that's not rushing it. That's actually getting the foundations in place now to do the things that most people in our community and in our farming communities want. I had the project manager of the Pomahaka Water Care Group in the studio last week, Lloyd McCall. I don't know whether you know him. And I said, has, has, uh, has Parker been down to have a look at what you guys are doing? Because you seem to be the blueprint, the way of the future. He said he hadn't. Well, why don't we just replicate the Pomahaka Water Care Group right around the country? Problem solved. OK, so that's what we're doing. Uh, we've, uh, in fact, I was meeting in Wellington yesterday where... I was talking to Ministry for the Environment and David Parker and said that we should put a huge focus on catchment groups. That farmers sorting out their own environment is the way to go, in my view. And we've got technical people who can help. But it's not our ball of wax, Jamie. It's up to the farming community to pick it up and start the catchment groups. Government can provide the support. The one thing I'd say about the Pomahaka group is I think the Support for them has been withdrawn a bit too early. They could have had a bit more time. But the Landcare Trust is doing a fantastic job in developing catchment groups. We need to actually expand that tenfold. Hey, just a final question for you. Is Fish and Game much more farmer-friendly now, that now that your controversial former chief executive, Martin Taylor, is gone? He wasn't very farmer-friendly. Well, I think that's up to the farming community to judge, really, Jamie. All I know is that for 150 years I've been, you know, not me, but our people have been fishing through farmers' properties and making friends. That's the way it should be. You know, when I go fishing, I can have a cup of tea or a beer and um, we can talk about anything except fish and game and politics. Um, to me, if you reduce it down to the local level, Jamie, we all get on. 
we've just got to make sure we respect each other. Hey, uh, Ray Grubb, always good to catch up, and we might catch up for a beer on the golf course one day soon. And uh, you can tell your listeners how you got on at Skins last Friday. Oh, no, we don't mention golfing failures. See you later. <laughs> Thanks, Jamie. Good to talk to you. The best of the country with Rabobank. The bank with local agri-banking experts passionate about the future of rural communities. Rabobank. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern kicks off the country. Lot to ch- lots to chat about today. Get it right. How about this one? A starter for 10, Prime Minister, Dame Lisa Carrington. Oh, I think I think a lot of New Zealand would be on board with that right now, Jamie. She's just incredible, just an incredible athlete. And just also a thoroughly decent person. Just, just a joy to watch her do so well. Yeah, country loves her. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Does the country still love you? I know 40% of them do. But was that poll a bit of a surprise to you? Oh, do you know, actually, I, I, I pick things up about the way people are feeling, Jamie, and there is just no question this is a hard year. Uh, and... 2020 was difficult, but 2021, we're grappling with the fact that this pandemic is not going anywhere. It is putting pressure on lots of different parts of New Zealand. And whilst, you know, we continue to do well economically and we continue to do well in terms of our health, there's no question that, that it, is, it, is, it is a hard year for many people. So my job is to hear that. I, I know that we need, to, and I absolutely still believe, we need to keep making progress on really important issues like climate change. But there are ways, for instance, we can ease that path. There are ways that we can make COVID easier to live with and our path out a bit clearer. There are ways I can make those challenges a bit easier for us to come to terms with too. So I'll constantly look for ways to do that. And I will always listen to people, even when we sometimes disagree. Jacinda, my spies in the beehive, and uh, I'm not saying I'm well connected at all, but I've heard through the grapevine (laughs) that those groundswell protests reverberated on the ninth floor. You sat up and took note. Oh, well, I think it would be unfair to say that I don't take note. Generally, when I hear concerns from uh, from different parts of different sectors that I that I work closely with and you know well because we talk often about it that I do work closely with uh, our food and fiber leaders and I do go out and visit and spend time in our rural communities so you know I, I it's not just you know seeing a protest I will hear and pick those issues up but I will also work to address them and you know, at the at the time, people asked what was my response to those protests. You know, what I would say is I do have obligations to follow through on the things that we said we would do on water quality and on climate. But there are ways that we can try and make the implementation of some of those changes as easy as we can and to try and give as much certainty as we can. And so where I can do that, I will look for ways to do that. Are you going to call the dogs off in the form of David Parker and James Shaw? Well, you know, I think... I, I would argue that when we've had issues that have been raised with us, in, intensive winter grazing down south, for instance, we did try and work through, and I think did come to a resolution there, working alongside industry uh, uh, to to make sure that we could find a practical solution um, to what is the same goal that we're all working towards, Jamie. And I am a pragmatist, but it's not going to stop me, of course, continuing to try and make progress on the things we need to move on. I'll keep coming back to the primary reason we're doing some of this work as well. We have to listen to what consumers out in the marketplace who are selling our products to are saying. And increasingly, when we have our trade discussions, issues around climate and the environment come up. These are things we can't stand still on, but that doesn't mean we can't find ways to make it a bit easier to implement. You're a pragmatist, and I would put it to you that you're also a populist, just like John Key was. 
You <laughs> like no, I'm, so this is a compliment. You like to be liked, I think, and I think you do lick your finger and put it to the wind and get the feel of the nation sometimes. Well, I like to. Well, I think I'd probably characterise it in a little bit of a different way. You know, I I accept that when when you're someone who wants to make change, you you will of course then come up against people who disagree with you. And that's inevitable. That's politics. Um, uh, but, you know, that's not to say so. I will not resolve from the change we need to make around, for instance, climate change or water quality. But I will listen. And if someone says, well, actually, the way that you're trying to get to that place could be made a bit easier, then I, then I will listen to that. I don't think, I don't think that's populist. I think it's, I think it's just good listening. And, and all politicians need to do that. Have you been listening when it comes to opening the borders to bring workers in? Good on you, by the way. Pat on mm. the back for bringing in the RSC workers. Maybe you could have moved a bit earlier on that one, but that begs the question. You're going to have the dairy people, the ag contracting people, the hospo industry are going to be on to you next. And I realise the RSC workers are in some ways a bit of an easy fix because they're coming from COVID-free Pacific nations. Plus, it's part of our aid deal, isn't it? And they are, and that's the reason we've been able to do it. And one of the reasons we can do that confidently is because over time we've been able to see that they are genuinely COVID-free. And one of the other things that's really important is we don't want people coming coming into New Zealand who then don't have a pathway home. And so, of course, part of these arrangements will be trying to make sure that there is a pathway home because we have had RSC workers stuck. That's then caused considerable welfare issues and concerns for our horticultural industry as well as, the, of course, um, uh, welfare issues for the people themselves. So, uh, yes, it has taken us some time, but there's been a number of reasons for that. But we're here now, which is fantastic. I'm confident we can get something in place for September that'll ease the pressure right into those peak periods in the early 2022 as well. For other industries, you know, yes, Jamie, one of the issues we have is our, our economy has essentially recovered to pre-COVID levels. But we've done that without having the free flow of people at our border. And so that has created pressure for a number of industries. We have had allocation of workers for the dairy industry, um, particularly recognising their access to farm managers. They also asked us that we try and give greater certainty to the workers who are here. So we have rolled over temporary work visas. It's one thing we can do, and next we'll be working on pathways to residency. Judith Collins wants to vote on the country's name. Where do you sit on that one? I, I absolutely disagree. It's just the last thing the last thing on my mind. I imagine probably the last thing on many other people's mind. I frankly I frankly think people can call a country whatever they like. I I genuinely don't care what people call New Zealand. It's a matter for them. I'm gonna keep focusing on things like our COVID recovery. Oh, and I better address this one, the elephant in the room, the accidental PM quip. Am I right in saying that in 2017, when Andrew Little stepped aside, you didn't really, at that stage, want to be the Prime Minister? Am I misreading history? Well, no, but it it is fair to say that back when he first suggested to me that I needed to take over from him, I encouraged him to stay. Uh, But, of course, since that time, uh, we've we've had an election and and, um, uh, people obviously made their choice. We got a good, solid majority. So uh, I think since that time, we've probably... Probably uh, uh, wouldn't call it accidental anymore. No, I don't think the 2020 result was accidental. (laughs) I'll give you that one. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, really appreciate your time. Thanks for yours, Jamie. The best of the country with Rabobank. Choose the bank with 120 years global agribusiness experience. Grow with Rabobank. 
Miles Hurrell is the Chief Executive of Fonterra. Let's have a look at last night's global dairy trade auction, down 1%. Whole milk powder worryingly down 3.8%. Miles, my opening shot is this. Is that $8 payout for the coming season under threat now? Uh, afternoon, Jamie. Uh, no, it's not. Um, you know, we always expected uh, for this year to, to start higher and as the year progressed uh, to see that, that uh, high prices that we saw back in March sort of come off a bit. Probably argue it's come off a bit earlier than expected. Uh, and and uh, as you would have noted, we've taken some product off GDT, which suggests that demand's still robust out there in the international market. So we had the, the, the luxury of taking product off GDT. Um, so come about a little bit earlier than we expected to see the softening, but uh, no, certainly not uh, under threat at this point. So you're telling me that you're getting more for the product off the GDT platform than you are on, which begs the question, why don't you take more volume off? Yeah, I mean, the, the GDT platform is a critical part of, a, of our milk price manual, and it feeds into uh, to price discovery for... Uh, for that milk price manual and gives clarity to our farmer owners as, as to uh, you know, clarity around what they can expect for, for milk price. So yes, it's the, it's, the, it's the piece by which you get price discovery. So anything we can sell off to GT to premium, we'll absolutely do that. Uh, but you've got to make sure you have enough product on there as well to keep liquidity, uh, keep um, keep a robust platform um, and keep, keep the, 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 the process honest, I guess. I note that the milk futures are now trading at $7.00. 75. What do they know that you don't know, or vice versa? Well, as we've, as we've seen, the futures can be wrong on, on more than one occasion. I think they were talking of, of a whole powder increase last night, and, and they got that wrong. I think there's probably three or four events in a row they've got that wrong. So, I mean, the future really just represents uh, where you find a winning buyer and winning seller, and uh, it's not reflective of, I don't think, of the full season. So, uh you know, we, we, we've just kicked off. We're on day three of, our, of, of the financial year, so a heck of a long way to go before we close the books in the year's time. Whole milk powder, as I said, down 3.8%. That's the biggest ingredient in the basket of goods. That's not mm. a great result, but uh, uh, contrary to that, skim milk powder up 1.5% and, and butter up 3.8%. What do we read into that? Yeah, well, I think for, for skim, I mean, we've, we've kept the premium over our European competitors for, for a while, and, and, and nice to see us still hold that. Uh, that said, it's, it's obviously diminished a little bit now. I think we're sort of talking about a $100 premium over our Europeans at, at the moment. So there's a little bit more milk that's come out of Europe and, and North America that, that's flown into that, but to see a, to see that increase last night was positive. And I think what you see in the butter context is, you know, you've seen uh, increases in food service demand, increases in consumer demand, uh, and, and again, those developing economies of places like China, which is again goes to support uh, that, that, that strong butter price. How are you getting on shipping the stuff around the world? Oh, pretty good actually. I mean, you know, when I look uh, against uh, against our peer groups globally, we're, we're faring pretty well. Um, uh, so we've just closed our financial year a couple of days ago, so we'll, we'll close the books and see where we landed. But we got most of our products the way we wanted to, so feeling really positive about that. And again, it goes back to our. Our long-term partnership with Maersk, uh, um, Port Otaro, Potahi, so that's, that's really paying dividends for us. How are your conversations with your shareholders going around the capital restructuring process? And I note that uh, the Fonterra share, when I looked shares, when I looked a bit earlier this morning, trading at what three dollars twenty-two, they got as low as two eighty towards the end of last week, down from a high of five fifteen in, in March of this year. Mm. What's the shareholder response to this reduced share price? Well, clearly the, the reduction in share price as a result of the capital structure conversations is, is, is never pleasing. That, that said, we, we did acknowledge and we did 
understand that we'd see some softening in that, in that uh, share price. We expected some volatility while we went in and undertook these conversations. We got some excellent feedback through the first round of consultations, so we've given some feedback already as to what we've what we've seen. Uh, we're sort of giving uh, our farmers a little bit of a breather while we undertake while they undertake rather uh, carving, uh, and we'll be out probably towards the end of August with a sort of another round of of what this looks like, uh, and hope to kick off more conversations in September. Still aiming for that vote at our annual meeting uh, later in the year, sort of early December, I think, at this point. Um, but, but you know, we're not going to rush that if we, if we don't feel that the farmers haven't supported. So, but feedback's been really, really positive. Great, great, uh, great engagement across across the board. Uh, really good insights, really good input. Um, but you know, you can't hide from the fact that uh, you know we've seen we've seen that share price uh, drop as a result of of our change in approach. I just want to throw a marketing idea at you to finish on. Beef and Lamb New Zealand had the Iron Maidens, Sarah Ulmer, the Everswindale twins. Have you thought mm. about getting a milk maiden? And I'm particularly thinking of Lisa Carrington. I, I hadn't. Uh, of course, we did We did uh, sponsor some of our athletes in the last uh, Olympics, you may recall, in Rio. Uh, so, uh, But I'm sure our marketing team, uh, who, who are a better versed at the stuff than I am, uh, we'll be in a better place to, to comment. But, I mean, what a fantastic uh, achievement from, from Lisa Carrington. In fact, all our athletes, uh, it's fantastic to see. And, um, and and I know for a fact uh, a lot of these uh, people are powered by good old uh, New Zealand dairy protein. So, there you go. Miles Hurrell, Chief Executive of Fonterra. Thanks for your time on The Country. Good on you. Thanks, Jamie. The best of The Country with Rabobank. Choose the bank with a huge network of progressive farming clients. Rabobank. Good morning, New Zealand. I'm Jamie Mackay. You are listening to The Best of the Country, brought to you by Rabobank, the world's leading food and agribusiness bank. You can grow with the bank that grows farmers. Just before I forget, on Monday's show, uh, 12 to 1, weekdays, of course, on Newstalk ZB, Gold AM and Hokanui, you can hear Todd Charteris, Rabobank's chief executive, uh, running through or reviewing the latest Rabobank Ag Monthly Report, hot off the press. Also, just a reminder that the 2021 Good Deeds competition is kicking off on Monday the 16th of August. We had such a great time earlier in the year doing some native plantings along a creek bed or a creek that they were restoring at Waitaki Boys High School in Oamaru. It was a great day out. So make sure you apply for the 2021 Rabobank Good Deeds competition. Up next on The Country, keynote interview for today, the best of the country, Michael Every, Rabobank's Singapore-based global strategist. He said to me midweek on the show that despite all the dark clouds on the horizon, New Zealand is well-placed to prosper with food at the top of the shopping list for many countries. We are going to wrap it with Simon Bridges, former National Party leader, we're going to preview his soon-to-be-released book, National Identity. But more importantly, we asked Simon if this is the first step back on the journey to his old job. He also had some really interesting comments to make about the groundswell protests and why he reckoned Labour is reactive rather than proactive with some of its policies. And there's a few out there that are very questionable. Don't start me on the ute tax. This is the best of the country, brought to you by Rabobank. The best of the country with Rabobank. The bank with local agribanking experts passionate about the future of rural communities. Rabobank. Let's head to Singapore. He is one of my favourite 
if not my favourite person to interview on the country. His name is Michael Every. He's a global strategist for Rabobank. Some people would call him an alarmist. And sometimes, Michael, even though I love chatting to you, I feel like jumping off the seventh floor of the building I'm working in after talking to you. Is that a common effect you have on people? Absolutely, including on my wife. It's a miracle we've been married as long as we have. Why are you so glass half empty when it comes to the prospects for our planet? I don't know. I like to think of myself as an optimist, and I do tell people that, and people who know me well understand that deep down inside I'm optimistic, but I'm an optimist wrapped in a pessimist and quite a thick layer of pessimist. I guess maybe, if I'm honest, Jamie, is because so much of what I see around me in terms of market research and journalism is just very shallow and very happy-clappy and sit around the fire and sing kumbaya. And all I like to do is just ask questions and say, well, if that, then what? And if you push your finger into it, you know, is it hard or soft? And just just ask difficult questions. I mean, I don't think I ask any more difficult questions than the average farmer does, you know, when they're dealing with someone who's trying to sell them a piece of agricultural machinery. You don't just... You don't just fall for the spin and for the nice brochure. You know, you want to take it for a bit of a joyride and see how it handles a, you know, a bit of rough weather and a bit of a, a rough bit of soil before you say, yeah, that'll do for me. And I try and apply the same logic to everything I see around me. But, Michael, at any point in history, a commentator such as yourself could look at the prospects for the planet and for our economy and saying, oh, we're truly screwed. It's like when I was growing up on a farm, my Dad used to ring up my uncle every lunchtime and they would start the conversation the same way. No doubt about it, they would say to one another, the country's buggered. And that was in the 1960s. Yeah, well, to be true, to be truthful, you can always say that. There is a, there's a profession of just always being, you know, full of doom and gloom. And actually, I'm not that. I'm, I'm quite optimistic about certain sectors and certain countries and certain developments. But what I do recognise is... If you want to get to where I think is a better place and uh, you accept that getting there is important, it doesn't necessarily mean the journey to there is going to be smooth or easy. It's kind of like as if you've broken your arm or your leg in the wrong position and someone says to you, well, I can put it back in the right position for you. You'll get full movement, but it's going to hurt like buggery while while I break it again to get it back in where it needs to go. That's pretty much where I see we are. It's not that we don't have any options. It's just that getting to where we need to go is really going to hurt first. Michael, if we're to use, say, the Dow Jones as a barometer for the world's financial health, and I know that's a rather crude mechanism, it's at record highs. If everything's so doom and gloom, why are, the, for instance, the equity markets performing so well, or why have they performed so well over the past 12 months? Well, that's a great question. I think the first and most important thing for everyone to understand is the stock market doesn't mean a thing. It has absolutely no relationship to the real economy whatsoever. Right now it doesn't anyway. It did once. Um, and basically, it's, as someone once said on television, it's a barometer of rich people's feelings. Um, that's all it really is. It doesn't actually speak to what Joe Public are seeing or experiencing. Um, and quite particularly, it's distorted at the moment because what we've seen under COVID has been an acceleration of what we saw before COVID, which was when things go south, the central banks basically pump in liquidity to the financial system, including in New Zealand, but that money doesn't flow down like water flowing downhill to the fields at the bottom. It just agglomerates and accumulates in a giant pool of liquidity in 
someone's field at the top of the mountain and it just stays there and it has to flow somewhere so it just goes into the stock price or into house prices but it doesn't go into your pocket in terms of earnings. So where does New Zealand sit in a COVID world or even hopefully at some time in the future a post-COVID world as a country that's got natural geographic advantages over nearly every other country in the world? We are one of the finest producers of food, perhaps the lowest carbon footprint producers of food in the world. Surely we're well positioned. I didn't say you weren't. (laughs) You know, I, I, I would say that that's absolutely true. And if you want some short term good news, which refers back to things that we've discussed in previous years, I mean, we're going back a few years now. Um, New Zealand apparently is edging much closer to a free trade deal with the UK, which takes us back to the uh, the, the pre-EU uh, trading days, if you remember those, you know. Um, so there are lots of opportunities out there. There are lots of good things to look forward to. But that, that doesn't eliminate the fact that right now the whole world is on a sticky wicket, not just New Zealand. And so <clears throat> with the best will in the world, you're not going to get through this as an island by yourself. If the rest of the world is struggling, so will you. But once we do eventually turn that corner, yeah, you've got so many natural advantages. I think your biggest issue is actually picking, you know, which team you want to be on and how you want to build on those advantages. Well, let's look at those teams, this huge geopolitical battle that's happening on the world stage. It is the might of China versus the might of the US. Will eventually China win this battle? Well, again, this is something that I think I was a very early voice talking about, and you and I have discussed many times, and I think it is now a pretty open topic of conversation in New Zealand, albeit one that maybe the government doesn't like having too loudly, and I I understand why in that regard. Um, Look, if you want me to actually call and say who's going to win this Cold War, because it is a Cold War, that's impossible to see because you don't know what everyone's going to do. If you want me to say who's got the stronger hand, um, and therefore from a probabilistic perspective in terms of, you know, who's more likely to win, given the cards in hand, it's more likely to be the US. It's more likely to be the the forces of the West, provided they play that hand well, which they have not been doing for a very long time. But for New Zealand, you know, like Australia, just over the Tasman, obviously this involves a lot of wrenching change. And you have seen some quite clear statements coming out of the government recently talking about the need to diversify and to be looking for other export markets. Now, that's a drum I've been beating since 2017, if not earlier, as you're probably aware. And the people who'd moved earliest on it, listening to that drum, are the ones who are best placed now. Um, So again, opportunities abound, but it does involve getting out there and trying to create them. And who knows, maybe the UK could be exactly one of those opportunities. Final question for you, Michael Every, global strategist out of Rabobank, based in Singapore. Uh, where's the smart place to invest your money or what's the smartest business to be in right now if you're listening to this interview and you're listening to this guy who's a global strategist, got his finger on the pulse, what's the smart play? Well, something New Zealand's got a lot of, which is natural resources. Because while we're seeing this global shift, that takes us away from basically the one world vision where you have a global map stuff is produced here and it's sold over there and your supply chain is completely global. If we're moving deeper into this Cold War, supply chains are going to fragment. Certain resources are going to be much more in demand than others. Food will be among them, by the way, right up there at the top of the list. And in terms of who does and doesn't have it, that's going to put people in a very, very strong position, provided they can support and defend that position. So, yeah, New Zealand's in a great position for that. 
And you want to be thinking about, okay, what do people really need as the bare essentials in the economy of the 21st century? Who's got them? And what stuff is in short supply and what can always be printed or basically created at the push of a button? Don't go for that. (laughs) Go for the stuff that you can't create at the push of a button. And I think New Zealand's got a lot of it. Michael Avery, I could chat to you all day. In fact, after this conversation, I don't think I'm heading for the seventh floor and that jump that you sometimes push me towards. I think I'm going to go to the ground floor and go and enjoy my lunch. Thank you very much for your time today on The Country. You're very welcome. Bon appétit. The best of the country with Rabobank. Choose the bank with 120 years global agribusiness experience. Grow with Rabobank. Good to welcome Simon Bridges back to the country. He's got a book coming out in a couple of weeks called National Identity. It's embargoed till then. We can't really talk about it. And we will have a chat about the book when it is published and available for sale. But Simon, I've read the book or most of it, and I think you could be onto a bestseller here. Good afternoon. Welcome to the country. Good afternoon. Thank you for that, Jamie. Look, I, I um I hope so. I mean it was good to good to write anyway. It was um good good for me and uh, I, I you know I hope I do hope though that New Zealanders enjoy it, that they identify with it, they that that the stories I'm telling they'll see as Kiwi stories. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to um the the response and seeing how it goes. It's amazing how you have an image of somebody and before I got to know you I thought Simon Bridges, flashy, Tauranga lawyer, double-breasted suit, following and following on from another flash Tauranga lawyer with a double-breasted suit, born with a silver spoon in his mouth, you know, Oxford educated, all that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. that's not really your backstory, is it? No, it's not. And, um, and I suppose it's part of the, the reason to, to write it, really, is just, you know, um, maybe some people got me wrong. And uh, so it's a good chance for me to do that. And, uh, you know, I had the time... Um, and I, I really enjoyed writing. It didn't actually take me that long. So yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to the 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 the, the, the critical but and more importantly the, the, the people's response to it, I suppose. You should have written this book before you became leader of the opposition. You might still have the job. Oh, too busy climbing the greasy pole, unfortunately, Jamie. So yeah, that's how it goes. Is this the first step back and the climb back up that greasy pole? No. no Happy to be the MP for Tauranga? You bet I am. You bet I am. <laughs> hey, let's uh, talk about a few issues while I've got you here. A vaccine passport. Now, I'm strong on this. I'm getting a jab, by the mm. way, this afternoon. Mm. Looking forward to it. Great. Can't wait. But I reckon we have a responsibility in this country to have a vaccine passport. Your choice if you don't want the jab, but you can't go to concerts, gyms, churches, rugby games or whatever. I don't know what the condition should be, you know, and how far you'd go on that, but I certainly agree with you in principle. Look, it's pretty simple to me that the big issue here in New Zealand is to get the vaccinations done. I'm with you. Uh, I, I haven't had the call up. I'm slightly uh, younger than you. Not not too much, Jamie, but I, when I get the chance, I will do it. And the thing about things like a passport is what they do is they allow us to, um, one, be safe, but secondly, to sensibly open up and we're not going to be able to be fortress New Zealand forever this Delta stuff and the various variants will be around I think for quite some time so we're going to have to have some of these sensible options I just pray actually that uh, the government is thinking about them now because look waiting for another year or something's not good enough they should be really thinking this stuff through right now but the main thing right now I repeat and you know this but it's it's the vaccination and everyone should be out getting it and the government's got to do a better job on the rollout. Well you're not part of the team five million unless you do get the vaccination what did you make of the groundswell protests I understand you were in Caddy Caddy uh, which is obviously a really good horticulture area Uh, lots of farmers around there what was your reaction? 
I was exactly like you. You summed it up well, Nicole. It was how I felt, and uh, my colleagues know this because I sort of voiced it a little bit. I was, uh, let's say, cynical. I just sat there and thought, oh, yeah, look, that's good, but um, I don't know that we all need to be at one. Let's just see how it goes. Um, yep, there's definitely issues there, but that's that. I went along. I was blown away. Uh, there was a huge crowd. I would say there was a good um, thousand out uh, in their tractors and utes. And uh, I was there in a very small old Audi, by the way, but that didn't really fit in. But that's the way it goes. And, and what I also thought was amazing was the way. Um, and and I, I don't think I've seen this before. Possibly the trucking protest I was part of in 2008. But it was just the way the shopkeepers, the mums, the dads, the kids were out supporting it, right? That told me that um, the organisers were definitely on something. And I think we see the the outflowing of it, if you like, in the, the latest News Hub poll where Labor's dropped a few percent and the centre-right is moving up. There's, there's a real sense of frustration throughout New Zealand and ground smell swell was definitely picking up on it. Well, my spies in the Beehive, and I said this to uh, the Prime Minister yesterday, I'm not that well connected, but I've got the ear of some people. They tell me that this did reverberate on the ninth floor of the Beehive, Mm -hmm. and they have actually taken notice of this. What annoys me about that so greatly is that it requires that to get them to move. They sort of do things begrudgingly. We saw in the RSC stuff earlier this week, they've had a bad poll. They've dropped in support. They know that it's about the lack of workers and businesses feeling under the pump and a bunch of other issues as well. So they do this, right? How about they do it because it's the right thing to do to be moving in the direction of having safe processes that allow more workers in anyway, right? It's, it's this begrudging, slowly, slowly approach only when the pressure builds so much that annoys me so much. I, I don't think it's going to stop, by the way, and what I mean is the groundswell-type movements, other protests. I hear rumours of a trucking-type one, having just talked about trucks before. I, I think we'll see the frustration growing because as a government that, look, they've done a good job early stages of COVID, but that lack of delivery, that, that sense that they got their priorities wrong on cycle bridges and hate speech and so on, I, I think that 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 frustration uh, will keep growing. It may have reverberated, but not enough, frankly. Hey, Simon Bridges, thanks for your time. I look forward to chatting to you in a couple of weeks, and we'll talk in depth about your new book, National Identity, when it is released. Always good to chat. Thanks for your time. Hey, thanks so much, Jamie. You have a great day. The best of the country with Rabobank. Choose the bank with a huge network of progressive farming clients. Rabobank. Simon Bridges wrapping the best of the country. Good morning, my name's Jamie Mackay. The best of the country is brought to you by Rabobank, the world's leading food and agribusiness bank. Will Simon Bridges be our next National Prime Minister? I wouldn't write him off just yet. When his book comes out, read it. It's a good read. Playing a wee bit of gold for our golden girl in Tokyo, Lisa Carrington. Can she get one more this afternoon? That final, if she makes it through, is on at 3.19pm. A final shout-out from me to the Southland Stags go against Otago. Catch you back next Saturday morning. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating and leave a review.
In Atlanta Braves A-list season ticket membership is more than just season tickets at great prices. It's a year-round experience full of perks, event invites, and benefits that take you beyond the game on the field. It's getting to know your usher on a first-name basis and receiving exceptional service from your personal representative. It's feeling like you're a part of the team. Truist Park is where you belong, and 2022 A-list season ticket memberships are available now. To view all the benefits available to A-list members, visit braves.com slash A-list. Hello, beautiful. I'm Amy Eric, founder of Madison Reed, a hair color company I named after my daughter. Experience gorgeous, lasting, high-quality hair color made with ingredients you could feel good about with consistent results every time. It's easy to find your perfect shade. Book a complimentary video hair color consultation with a licensed colorist on madison-reed.com and get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit. Use code RADIO10. That's code RADIO10. Oh, man. I see Mark Harlan's head bobbing over there. I did this for you, Mark. A little Eagles. As you know, I'm a huge Eagles guy. And I just want to make you feel welcome. I got you your Diet Coke. I'm playing your favorite band. Are we off to a good start? We're off to a good start. I appreciate the Eagles. You give me a little grief about it, but uh, you got to like what you like. Indeed. Hey, Own it. Thank you so much for coming in today. I appreciate it, by the way. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Been working on this for a while. Utah Athletic Director Mark Harlan's in studio. We're going to get a couple of segments in before he's got to go do things that are more important than talking to me. Um, You know, let's just start with something fun. I hope that football camp opening for you is fun because I know probably, I don't know, 85% of your job isn't very fun. Maybe 90. I don't know. I don't deal with it every day. But you're a football guy. Do you get that excitement when camp is finally here and day three of Kyle's camp is today? Yeah. You know, what's great about August really is the fact that our students are back. Our students are reporting for camp. Like this morning, I talked to the soccer team and just they're so excited and fired up. Monday, I'll be with our volleyball team. And when you when you ask me about football, it's the same way. I got to chance to meet with all the men the I think it was on Monday night Tuesday night perhaps and just to see their faces and just their excitement and then you throw COVID into it and and the fact that it, it really feels like it's been two years since we've been together in that way so it's it's our way of celebrating New Year's in intercollegiate athletics and to see all the faces back their coaches and and the fun times ahead it's a pretty exciting time so you you brought up covid let's stay in that space for a moment um you know we saw the sec announce potential sanctions including forfeits the nfl is threatening to take game checks which took me completely off guard um how are you guys handling it both on the institutional level on then on the conference level has uh new commissioner george klevikov given you any guidance is there a certain level you have to hit like what's going on currently right now with the COVID stuff yeah it's a great question and and certainly it's been a a major topic of discussion amongst the ad's and and our new commissioner you know he stated at media day and he told us as well that we're in a better position to really make a final decision probably within the next 10 days if if you were to say you know what's my position my position is it should be a forfeit i think that you know, I think we all have an opportunity to get the vaccine. Uh, there, we, you know, we didn't have that opportunity last fall, as we all know. So, you know, it's incumbent on us to educate our young people, by the way, in all our sports, about the importance for your own health and safety. Let's forget about playing a game. But there is something that science has, has provided us and to keep us safe. And so that's my, my view on it. 
collectively the conference will make that decision, like I said, in about the next 10 days. So um, we really have come to the point now where, in my opinion, we need to stop fighting each other and just fight disinformation, right? Fight the people out there that are lying to other people for their own agenda, whether it's continuing to create revenue streams like cable news is doing or social media. How, how have you handled that challenge? Because like I said, we can't fight each other. We just have to start fighting the disinformation. But I would imagine you probably have had some conversations with your staff or the coaches and maybe somebody expresses some trepidation because they heard something about the vaccine. What sort of challenges has that presented to you as the leader of that and the steward of that program? Well, the great thing about my job is I work at a university and when you work in a university, it's a lot about teaching and, and learning and certainly listening. And I've approached the whole thing uh, in that way. We've we've been very diligent to make sure our students, staff, and coaches are, are getting the information from scientists and doctors. And that's the process we've been undergoing, frankly, since since the vaccine came online and, and certainly got down into that age group that we are you know blessed to be around with on a regular basis. And so We've, we've been diligent and consistent, and, and we've seen our vaccine. We're about 85% all student-athletes. We're, we're actually heading toward 93 95% That's range for, awesome. for football. But, but it's important for me to let you know I have great respect for those young people who are still trying to find their path with the vaccine. And I'm not angry, and I'm not frustrated. I, I just think it's our obligation to make sure they're in front of the right people and work with them. So we've developed a, a, an unvaccinated plan for our students. Uh, to try to manage their experiences the best they can, keeping them as safe as they can and keeping everybody safe and, and keep our teams moving. So very pleased with where we're at and give a lot of credit to our coaches and certainly to our doctors that have been all over this and, of course, our students as well. So the plan as of today, though, full speed ahead, open up Rice-Eccles for the crowd. I mean, obviously, it, it, it would sell out for the next 20 years, you know, what the waiting line looks like. So uh, it's not like, hey, you're going to open up and see a couple of hundred people spill in. There are going to be, what, 50,000 people in that in that stadium. Is that still the plan as of now? Absolutely. As we sit here today, we're, we're, we're rocking and rolling. We're just about sold out on the red zone, Ken Garf red zone, which is great. And, of course, we know about the rest of the stadium. So we're excited about that. Uh, we also know that COVID takes its turns and we will continue to follow the guidelines of, of our county and our state and our doctors uh, to, do the, to do the right thing. Here's an interesting little tidbit. If we were to have a football game today, we wouldn't be able to play because oh, yeah. of air quality. Oh, wow. Yeah, a little, little unknown fact uh, that I hope that we don't uh, have to talk about much further, but you get into the 150-200 AQIs, it's called You Can't Play. That's okay. NCAA and Pac-12, and, and we had a reading on campus over 300 at about 10.30 this morning, which caused us to end all practice on campus. We'll take another reading probably as you and I are talking uh, with football practice. So if it's not one thing, it's another, Spence, but we're going to continue to move march forward. I had no idea that that was a thing. I, I mean, it makes a ton of sense because Fox 13 came out with a report today that congratulations, Salt Lake, you have the worst air quality in the world. Well, this is about the fires, as you know. This California Absolutely, fire yeah, yeah. Yep. has, has mm-hmm. taken over our, our, our county today. And gosh, I don't know if you've seen pictures in New York City, too. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an unbelievable situation. But I only bring it up. It just goes to show we got to control our controllables, right? And, and, and get the guys ready and get all our teams ready. But uh, today would have been a real challenge for us. You, this is your third year? This, I'm going into my fourth going football season. Fourth, yep, fourth uh, fall. As you sit here today and you look back to the day you took the job and you think about everything that's gone down during those three plus almost four years now, what comes to, I mean, it's <laughs> like I've talked about this on air. I'm like, Mark probably uh, wished that he would have known some of the, these things were going to go down before he took the gig. I mean, I think you're doing a great job. And I've talked to Thank people you. up there that really like and respect you. But as you reflect back on this insanity, what comes to mind? 
Well, I mean, the nature of intercollegiate intercollegiate athletics, whether you're in my position, a staff or a coach, is you're, you just you got to have your head on a swivel because the day will day will take its uh, its its twists and turns. I just feel very blessed. You know, it's it's an incredible university to be at. Incredible coaches, a lot of veteran, thoughtful people. Uh, up and down the board, staff and otherwise, yeah, we've had our challenges, but together we've kind of maneuvered our way through them. And and the other thing that's been so great is the campus support trustees, of course, President Watkins, uh, now President uh, Randall. Look yep. forward to working with him starting Monday. I know him well, but you know when you surround yourself and you have those kind of people, you can kind of get through anything. And frankly, when you're in a fire, you get to you get to really get closer to people. And so we've certainly had some of that, but. That's why I'm just so proud of our, our teams and coaches. I mean, we, we are really emerging from COVID a better version of ourselves. And I look forward to see what these young people can do. Let's go back to football for a moment because I do want to tap into um, this angle of you being excited about your job for a minute. Do you allow yourself to, like, I think they're going to be nasty. You know, like you look at everything that they're bringing back and the positional battles will be decided by coaches that have a proven track record of making the right choice. We'll see what happens at quarterback. But, you know, reading some stuff about, hey, we're not sure who the strong safety is going to be or whatever. I'm like, yeah, Morgan's going to be – It's you know, he, he makes the right call in that direction. Do you allow yourself to expand your mind for possibilities of a special season this year potentially? I know it's the hope that kills, but it's also kind of fun to be excited about well, of it. of course. I mean, I'm, I'm a fan too. You know, I, lo- I love these young people. I love our coaches, and, and, and I can, I can uh, dream big like everybody else. I will say, you know, when Witt talked last week at Media Day about the leadership of the team and, you know, comments about reminding him of the 19 team, that really rings true to me. I mean, I, I think of Devin Lloyd, I think of Britton, I think of Nick Ford. I could go on and on. These are special young men who, who had opportunities, you know, uh, to, to begin their pro careers, but they stayed because they're chasing something bigger. That has a lot of echoes of, of 19 to me when we certainly spent most of the season dominating our opponents. So, you know, I'm very excited. I love the depth of our team. Um, you know, we have a bigger team because the super seniors, you know, and just like everybody, that's not necessarily different from everyone else. But I don't know, it just it, more leadership and more depth than I've ever been around in my 20 plus years. Um, and just great kids. And like you said, coaches that, you know, staff that's been consistent, they all know each other. And I think that gives you the very, very best opportunity to succeed. They are good kids, at least the ones I've been able to get to know a little bit. We're going to try to do some things with Nick and Clark throughout the course of the, the football season. Now, Clark is amazing, too. Another Gets another, it, by the way. Uh, For a kid that's yeah. 19 and just gets it, I mean, I was yeah. blown away. Looks you right in the yep. eye. Yep. And, and, you know, I met his parents during the recruiting process, and, and you could just tell. So just, a, just another great, and there's, I could say 20 more, 30, sure. 40 yeah, more. Yeah. Great, great young men. So, um, obviously, there have been a couple of things with college football recently um, that have changed the scope of probably your job and Kyle's, too. And I want to dig in a little bit on the early returns of name, image, and likeness and the transfer portal. So, um, you know, from from my vantage point, I think it's really exciting to see these kids profit off of who they are. I, I think it's a, a, something that should have happened a long, long time ago. But I also try to make space to acknowledge the concerns that people have about Uh, the product that they love. I love college football, and I don't know what it's going to look like in a couple of years, and I love college basketball. So while I applaud the decision and the endeavors that they're undertaking, I don't know what it means for the product that I love. But early returns on transfer portal, name, image, and likeness sound like what? Well, let's start start with the transfer portal. You know, transferring has been going on for a long time, so I don't feel like it's anything new. We certainly are seeing a spike in it. Matter of fact, we just got data as ADs and the football oversight committee last week. And we've, you know, we've seen pretty much a 45% spike 
Uh, is that from, more from, or less than you were anticipating? Well, it's probably about what we were anticipating. Okay. You see a big spike when when they announced that you didn't have to sit out a year. Obviously, that makes sense. The young men now knew that they would be able to play automatically unless they had transferred before, of course. But so I don't feel much different there. Okay. Um, you know, I've told the coaches, and and we're all on board with this. And I think you and I have talked about this before. Like, let's be the very best at this. Yep. Let's treat the kids great so that they don't leave for silly reasons. But let's be really good on that portal. Let's really make sure our staff is 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 all over this, and and let's present Utah in the best way for the opportunities. And so now you look, you know, I know football gets a lot of the uh, press on this, but if you look across a lot of our sports, we have a lot of uh, incoming transfer kids. We've really become a destination, which I think we should all take pride in. And certainly, we've seen some great kids, and I think we'll see more. So I feel real good about that. I think the freedom for the students to do it is the right thing to do. And uh, I don't see it see it harming anything uh, at this point. You could argue that the division that the lower divisions are, are you know kids are transferring up, mm-hmm. but that's great for the kids, absolutely. Right? Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's to your point. Name, image, and likeness. I agree with you. You know, it took us a long time to get there. Uh, I'm really excited that we're here. We've been spending a lot of time on it, not only as a department, but with our students and also with the Echo School of Business and Lasan Institute, where now President Randall. His team and my team have been working really hard for nine months to get this right. And now here we are. And so we're seeing some really good activity from our students. It's all about the time that they have and the effort that they can put it like sure, any, yeah. any J-O-B, yeah. right? And, uh, but it's been fun to see some of the stuff that's going on. Uh, we've seen some real activity with our gymnasts, which we expected. Of course, when our Olympian gy- gymnasts get back, that's going to be really fun. And, and, and certainly with our fall sports, they're kind of cranking it up. Their time is limited. But I love what I'm seeing. I love the educational part of it. You know, I'll give you an example. We got to be careful, right? If you're on a Pell Grant, you know, you can lose your Pell Grant if you if you go do something. We, I want to make sure those kids all fully understand that, and then they can make their decisions accordingly. So feel good about it. I would like to see a federal national law so that we're all operating off the same songbook. I think that's important. And as most of your listeners probably know by now, in Utah, we never had a state law. So that allows uh, BYU, Utah, Utah State, et cetera, to kind of create the best path forward for their students. And that's been a fun way to do it. And and so I think we're in a really good place there. But I still would like to see uniform rules that aren't taking away kids' opportunities, but at least we're all operating off the same uh, rule book. I don't know if you looked at my notes, but that's exactly where I wanted to go next. Because, I can't see that for me. Well, yeah, but you couldn't be more correct. And it, it did feel like when the Supreme Court was like, hey, you're an anti, uh, you are a serial antitrust violator. Go away, figure this out. Stop wasting our time. And then Mark Emmert and his staff kind of went back, and and it just felt like it was kind of like, all right, good luck, wild, 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 wild west. Figure it out, state by state, school by school. So my follow up is, do you have any idea what a time frame could look like when you actually do have a handbook to look at to help you traverse through this? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, there's certainly activity on the federal side. You know, I've 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 had as with our government relations folks and certainly other athletic directors have had conversation with Senator Romney's office and Senator Lee's office. Uh, they've been great, by the way, very engaged and wanting to understand. And then I think that's the case across a lot of uh, the country. There is an understanding that in that in that space, there should be some equality in that. But there's a lot of other stuff going on in this country, sure. as we all know. And so you, you, you fall in line for when it's appropriate. In the meantime, what is good is, is we've now been in the space for six weeks. It seems like most of our peers get it and, and we're not seeing egregious violations. And again, Everybody agrees. If you use this to use a donor to induce a young person to come here and say, if you come here, you'll get this, that's a problem. And I think everyone understands that we can't have that um, or pay for play at this point. I say at this point because you never know what the future brings. Right. But as it is right now, those are the two tenets that we're trying not to cross. 
most members of, of Congress seem to get that. So we'll see. The good news is we're in a good operating rhythm right now, and we hope that eventually we'll get a uniform rule. You mentioned the donor that could lead to an athlete just coming to the school that he wants him to, he or she, if you just plug a bunch of money in a, his, you know, the bank account. And obviously, that's something that probably should be regulated. But I do think a line of delineation between schools that will do well with this and schools that will fall a little bit short is um, an impassioned and involved alumni base that's willing to help you out, business owners around town that can say- In the right way. Yeah, exactly. And that's awesome. So have you had any conversation? Because this city is run by University of Utah alumni. I mean, I would imagine you've had some alumni reach out to offer some assistance. Education is multifaceted. It starts with our students and our coaches and our staff all understanding how we're doing it here. And the next piece is, yeah, making sure that that those folks that want to get engaged, that we properly- uh, in the right way, introduce those, right? And then let those things happen naturally. You know, listen, there's malfeasance uh, prior to July 1. Yes, there is. Uh, we, we, un- we understand that. We get that, you know, and, and so we'll manage those things as they, they come accordingly. I just have been impressed, and I've got AD friends in all the, all, all the conferences, and we kind of talk all, all the time. Everyone really gets it. Like, let's just do this the right way. And if someone feels like something's going off the charts, let's not let that happen. You know, but I feel like our students have a great opportunity. You're right about Salt Lake, full stadium, uh, all those different things. I think there's great opportunities uh, for our young people. And you see some of our students, you're seeing a little bit like in men's basketball, those guys have a little bit more time. We're seeing a little bit more activity. I can see it pick up when football has a little bit more time at the end of the season, bye week, whatever it will. It's all going to kind of be rhythm of the year, but... um, there's some pretty cool stuff that, that is already going on. Yeah, no, no doubt. And excited to see where it goes from here. Um, we'll get to the basketball stuff in a little bit. But, um, you know, th- there's been some conversations. And I, I was talking to a coach, a basketball coach back east, uh, uh, who I played AAU ball with. And he's now coaching Manhattan College. His name is Steve Masiello. And after all this went down, we got on the phone. He said, I don't know how I'm going to build a program, you know, with – uh, the potential of losing, and obviously University of Utah, Manhattan College, it's a different level. But you know, Steve was talking about every player he developed going to a bigger school, and uh, but but we had a conversation about the politics in his locker room changing, based on one or two of his players being able to consummate some big time deals, and some other players going, I'm left out in the cold. And after the NIL stuff came down officially that week, we had a bunch of ex University of Utah football players on, Stevenson, Sylvester, and I, I thought Robert Johnson out, you know, articulated the potential for jealousies in the locker room pretty well. I mean, is, you've been in locker rooms for a number of years. I mean, is that something that you foresee as a complication? I mean, locker rooms can be political and there's jealousies, like you're dating the girl that I was with before, whatever, I like that right. shirt. But now it's, okay, Clark, you just signed a $500,000 deal and the guy over here didn't. I mean, obviously that's a extreme example, but is that a concern too? Well, I think, I think it could be. I think it's one of those things that... Uh quite candidly, maybe I heard too much about going into NIL as a reason not to do it. And I, I, I just didn't, didn't like that part of it. It's not fair to the students who deserve it. So we have to figure out a way. I think I would say for coaches, um, it is a challenge. You have to keep an eye on it. Um, but I honestly believe Spence that I think it's the ones that are going to really work hard. It's not just being a big name. You also have to then spend time on it. Right. And I think there'll be respect that, okay, John Smith or Jane Smith has is, is kind of earned that because he or she has gone out there and hit the pavement and done the meetings you need to do and had the contract looked over. And I think there'll be respect for people who do the work. Um, but I, I just, you know, I, again, I, I brag about our coaches. I, I think they've seen it all, a lot of them, and they've, and they've dealt with a lot of different things. 
Um, let's go back to summer jobs. I remember when that happened. Oh, my gosh, we're going to let the students have summer jobs. Can you imagine such a thing? And, of course, the sky didn't fall, and some kids got paid more in the summer, and some kids didn't, and we were fine. We'll keep an eye on it. It's always team dynamics. You always have to nurture it, but I'm not worried about it. Good. All right, we'll catch a break. Coming up next, I do want to talk about – and we'll talk about some of the others. But I thought the Michaela stuff was so fun. Like, yeah, What an awesome story. We'll get to that. But I, I want to ask you about Kyle, and it's his 17th year. He's in his 60s, and you know, uh, there, I, have a, I have one direct question I'll ask you coming up next. I also want to talk about the early returns of your head basketball coach. Mark Harlan is live in studio. We'll do one more segment with him coming up on the other side right here on ESPN 700. Oh man, Mark! I just I see you over there. Is that a tear? Do, do I see a tear? Str- just trying to figure out how I'm going to get Porter back. Just st- streaming down your cheek. Is that a tear? I mean, look, this it's is a smoke. Be- it's a beautiful smoke. song. It's not talk about smoke. This is sports. Mark Harlan live in studio. He is the athletic director for the University of Utah and the president of the Eagles fan club oh, in the state God. of Utah. Give me a break. Hey, let, let's just bring this off-air conversation on air for a moment. You um. Four years, you and your wife and your kids, and you guys have settled in here quite nicely. You like it, don't you? Gosh, we love it. You know, it's such an exciting um, thing to come here, and now you fast forward, and, and um, you know, we love we love every part of being here, you know, and I think we were really blessed to be here during COVID. I, I, and it just such great people who care and, and the outdoors, and I mentioned before the people I work with, but my kids love school here. They're making great friends. My wife is really the same. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it really has felt like home, particularly in the last 12 to, uh, to 24 months. And just, we're very, very grateful. Because it can be complicated. You know, um, there are folks that aren't, excuse me, necessarily overly accepting to people from the outside right away. Did it, did it take a minute or did you feel like it was, you know, kind of a pair of pants that fit right away? I think when you have a position like mine, you feel really welcome all the time, which is, which is nice. So my focus was just on my family and and how they were going to settle in. And that happened really quickly. You know, I mean, we just never lived in a place where people come and knock on the door and welcome you and hand you bread and and check in on you. And, and like all families, we've had things that are, have been difficult, you know, neighbors checking in on us and, you know, it's just been a really, really, you know, I keep using the word blessed, but that's the way the whole family feels. And, and, you know, my daughter is, is knee deep in high school and, and it just fun to watch her doing that. My son, you know, will be the big guy in the middle school this year. And, playing playing baseball all over the state on a travel team some great coaches so it's just been fun to go around with that team and see different parts of utah but uh we're very happy have mom and dad made friends it's one thing for the kids to make friends have <laughs> mom and dad made friends we thank you we we have we've made some great friends both from the job and from outside the job and and uh you know, it's kind of fun at Garth Brooks. You know, we got to take a lot of our friends, and and I didn't have to be stressed. Yeah. At the at the stadium, and that was a really fun experience. But uh, no, we're making friends, and it just it just feels like home, and, good. and that's especially important because I know my family feels like home. Speaking of the stadium, everything good to go? Or is the construction done, or are you still kind of working on? Some yeah, things? we're in that last month where you you just you're, you're excited, but you know there's still more work to sure. do, and and late in construction, and it's just every it just been just so awesome, you know. And we'll have the ribbon cutting next week, nice. you know, with the, the main donors. And, of course, the open house shortly thereafter for folks to just not only come down and see it, but get inside it and see the behind-the-scenes space. 
Yeah, we're going to get there. It's a, it's 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 stunning. It's everything we hoped it could be and more. Uh, take us up to fifty one thousand four hundred and forty four. That's awesome. Up from forty six and change. Amazing. And so uh, it's awesome. It's just amazing for me to you know because I was a student there in the late nineties and it doesn't look like the same school at all. None of it. Facilities, not just athletically, but on the education side too. Uh, that football facility is second to none. I, I would imagine you take a lot of pride in all the facilities up there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just you know I remember when I got the job you know i did an interview on campus and i hadn't been here since 2011 when i was with ucla and yeah. i was walking around i texted chris hill i said what have you done gorgeous the facilities yeah. are just absolutely stunning and then what's really fun is when alums come back homecoming or other days they talk about as you just said the rest of campus sure yeah it's just a constant uh change of, of buildings that come up that are just special and make the place great and uh we're real happy you know we opened up a golf academy indoor golf facility for our now top 25 team you know the ski building the practice facility at basketball football I could go on and on and we'll always have designs on the next big thing which we'll do um that's a part of keeping up and being great but uh incredible facilities at utah so um real quick and this just kind of came to my mind i didn't plan on asking you this but byu utah football taking a two-year hiatus after this game and I'm sure you've been asked about it, and I'm sure you have plans at some point to resume consistently. But can you can you speak to that dynamic? Yeah, absolutely. I've been I've been clear that when it makes sense uh, for both both BYU and Utah uh, to to do something with their schedule, uh, we both should have the conversation. And Tom Homo and I knew each other prior to to me being here, and so it's been a real easy relationship. In the case of that, a few years ago now, it's amazing that it's already coming up next year. I explained to him the situation. He said, "Great," and we worked on it together. Uh, we will resume the series with with BYU after that, and and go forward from there. And and he'll ping me, or I'll do the same if if something makes sense to uh, take a break. If if we have other opportunities that might make sense, and that's the relationship you want. Yep. And it makes sense for both sides. And uh, you know that being said, I love the game. You know, I've been a part of it now. Uh, what is it, two or three years? And and it's just been it's been awesome. And I'm sure this year will be no different. What do you? What would you say to the faction of the Ute fan base? And it does exist. And I'm not even saying they're necessarily wrong, but selfishly, like you, I love the game, so I'd love to see it played every year. Is is there a legitimate case to be made that playing that game doesn't make sense for you guys? Well, I've certainly heard from that group. Sure, they're, I, they're, so have I, and I don't even work they're, for it. They're not shy, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and and I love their passion. I just I just disagree, and very respectively, yeah. I, I think that playing BYU is something uh, that the state really enjoys. And I've said this before, and I think it's way underreported. Our students love playing in that game. Sure, and I say that game meaning soccer, baseball. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I could go on and on. You're tied in with us too, you know. I, these guys grew up together. These gals grew up together in, in a lot of cases. And um, so I, that's important to me as well. And I think it's important to Tom. Uh, it's a national rivalry. I watched it growing up in Los Angeles. I watched it when I lived in Tampa. Uh, and so I think it's good. And, you know, I, I understand and I respect those opinions, but, you know, we, we've chosen this path. Has, um, you know, this will be Kyle's 17th year. He's now in his 60s. And some people talk about the desire to spend time with family, and you're like, you don't ever even talk to your wife, so let's not do that. Kyle's not. (laughs) Kyle is very much a committed husband, father, grandfather now. His family's always around. Yeah, a hundred percent. And look, I I I think he's Utah's Lavelle Edwards. I I think when he decides he's done, a statue should be built. Has he earned the right to call his shot? I mean, obviously, if something goes down where you have to get involved, you're going to have to do something. But 17 years, you know, the guy that really has been the main cog and an architect in building this program now to what I call a benefit of the doubt program, you're going to be 
uh, pretty good and competitive every year. Has he earned the right to call his shot whenever that is? He's earned a lot of rights. Yep. You know, let's not forget that after the 19th season, you know, he got a seven-year contract extension. And, and you know, he's he's going to coach here as long as he likes. He he just continues to to always look at ways that he can be better. And if he's better, then the program's better. And that's where really the respect I, – I always try to – figure out the different ways I can describe to colleagues that ask, what's it like to work with Kyle? And I think I just boil it down to that every morning. And it's usually early. He's thinking, how can I get better and as such the program? And I, I think that's remarkable for how many years he's, he's done it. And listen, you know, I just think about last year and how awesome he was, you know, this is a pretty regular scheduled dude, right? Mm -hmm. And like a lot of us are, and he just adapted and 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 really guided a really safe environment, which is the most important thing we do. And and I just even gained more respect for him. Um, so yeah, I mean, call your shot however you want to do it. He's our coach. We're so proud to have him here. He'll do it as long as he wants. And and for that, it's such a blessing. Real inside baseball, I guess I should say inside football. It's pretty funny at Pac-12 Media Day. I mean, he's the dean. Oh, and yeah, it, and yeah. it ain't close. Right, right. I mean, it's like they all come up to him and. You know, and I know that's not how it was when we first came in. It's 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 pretty funny, and his forearms are bigger than any of them, yep. and he's better shaped than any of them. It's uh, it's pretty awesome. Oh, the first few years, Mark, and I talk about this often because I mean, I'm I'm lucky because I've known Kyle. My dad was at BYU when Kyle was there. My dad played basketball. Kyle played football, so they've had a relationship. And um, so I never, for a moment, thought that he couldn't figure it out. But the first couple of years, and I remind people because I heard from you. Okay, and I'm not just talking about Twitter trolls. I'm talking about Season ticket holders that write checks to the university saying Kyle Whittingham is not the guy. I mean, it took a minute for the folks around here to really give him more of the benefit of the doubt. And I think he's obviously uh, proved all of his supporters right. Yeah, and I assume you're referring really to the first couple years in the league. Correct, yes. Yeah, and I think he describes that well. I love how when he talks about he's had two head coaching jobs. You know, people are like, what? And then, you you know, it completely changed in, in 2010, 2011. And he just built. He saw it. He had a vision. Uh, Chris stuck it through all of those things. Um, although I remember being at UCLA and, and I hate to bring up pain for, for Utah fan base. They were a missed field goal of, of being South champs, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, in a tough year for the South, we get that, but nonetheless, um, where we are now, you know, top, always top picked all these draft picks. It's, it's really amazing when you stop and think about it. So, um, the, the day that the announcement was made that Utah was going to the Pac-12, we had our show up there, ESPN 700. I was, I was here back in the day before a stop, and now I'm back. But, and I can remember looking at the dais, and Dr. Hill doesn't smile a ton, but he was smiling that day. Uh, everyone else was celebrating, and you look over at Coach Witt, and he had this like stone-cold like Because he knew. Yes, absolutely. He knew. Yeah, and anyone who follows college football, understands that that's a big-time jump. So he needed a minute, but, man, has he done such a great job. It's just huge. He's taken the advantages, so to speak, air quotes, of of now walking into an L.A. home, Houston home, whatever it might be, and talk about the league, but so is the rest of the league doing that. Right, yep. So it it really is. It's been an unbelievable rise. It, 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 uh Epic is a, is it really a way to do it? And but he's the first to say, "Hey, listen, you know, we got a lot of goals we haven't yep. accomplished yet. We got to take that next step." And and he believe me, he thinks about that night and day. Well, and not a ton of coaches get seventeen years if they haven't won a conference championship. I mean, just to be fair, you know, and I, I think Kyle's the guy, and I love that he's been here this long. But I think it's fair to ask that, okay, you know, because the the days of 
coaches being underpaid here are long gone. Kyle's one of the top paid coaches in the country. And, you know, Craig is making a little less than Larry was. And we'll get to that in a second. But I, I would imagine from your seat, there's a delicate balance of, yes, we love our coach, but yes, we want to continue to evolve and we'd love to see a Rose Bowl and a Pac-12 championship. Absolutely. And he's the first to to examine that more than I ever would, or certainly a fan. How do you, how do you take those those steps to to win a league? Um, we were we were at the doorstep in 19. You learn a lot yep. when you're at the doorstep and, and don't make it. And believe me, everything has been analyzed uh, a thousand different ways, and that's the guy who you want analyzing it. And it comes down to keep recruiting, keep recruiting, keep recruiting. Yep. Uh, get your athleticism where it needs to be, and and we're, we've seen a lot of that certainly, and and not only in in high school kids coming in, particularly over these last few years, but transfers and and a good staff too, right? You know, there's consistently finally, yes. good yep. staff. Yep, finally continuity with the offensive coordinator. Andy's a hell of a hell of a coach. Uh, Morgan with the defense. Uh, would you like to talk about the real housewives of Salt Lake City and, and a coach shop pep talk, or you want to leave that aside? I'm not sure I know what, with what you're referring to. Fair enough. Then we'll just go ahead and, and stay away from that. Um, all right, let's move over to Craig. Um, I was talking about this earlier. You've made decisions. This is kind of the first big-time hire I feel like you've made. I know you've made, hired other coaches and right. and hired other staff members. Um, and I, I like Larry a lot. Larry was good to me, and I, I think Larry's a good coach, and he's young, and I think he'll coach somewhere else. But I, I get it. I understand because, again, back to the paycheck thing, Larry, I think, was the 13th highest paid coach in the country. And you got to win. And you got to win at a high level. I, I grew up in pro sports. I've seen very good people, including my father, lose jobs because he was with teams that just didn't win. It just happens. So you made the transition. What are the early returns as Craig is your new head, head men's basketball coach? Well, let me, let me first just make a comment about Larry because he is a great person. He's a, he's a terrific person, and so is Jan and the whole family. And and uh, I really appreciated the time that I got to to spend with him. And and I think that's really important. You know, there's not everybody is always the best of people in, in the business. I mean, it's probably the same with you. He's a elite person, and he and he gave a lot of time and frankly treasures to some great causes in Salt Lake. And I just think that's really really important. To your point, you know, obviously we we had to meet at the end of the season, and we just you know, both kind of felt like this was the time and, and it just, you know, we just needed to advance the program. And, and so we made the decision, I made the decision and we got Craig when we were, we were, uh, you know, really fortunate to have him so close. We, I've been watching him, um, just remarkable work he's been doing up there. Have a lot of friends in college basketball, you know, high on a lot of their lists and we got him and, you know, <laughs> It, it's 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 an unbelievable challenge to be a new head coach with the portal, and you know, and some could say good and bad with the portal, right? Some kids leave that. Maybe you were thinking you might want them to leave if you're Craig or not, but here he is. He just had this blank canvas, and he's just built the roster back up. I had a chance to go talk to that group during their summer workouts. They need name tags. We'll get those for them when they come out. But great kids. Really, it was fun to watch them get better in the summer. And I love his staff, you know, a lot of energy, um, you know, anyone that can come to practice, will see, I mean, it's just energy. It's fun. It's, it's just always moving. So I, I I'm really excited about Utah basketball. I, I don't really know how this year will look because we still got to do more team building that he's working on and getting to know everybody. Um, and certainly the PAC 12, as we've seen is, is getting better, which is really exciting overall. But I know he's the guy to get us there. You know, it's a really good basketball conference. It's a good football conference. It's a really good basketball conference. So I keep saying, let's give him a little bit. You know, let's let's not go hard in on him if he's 0-6 in conference play. I believe every coach should 
receive a four-year at least cycle to get their guys in. Unfortunately, most people aren't that patient. That's why Kyle's 17 years is pretty phenomenal. Um, real quick, let me follow, and I do want to finish with Michaela because it's the feel-good story. There were some inconsistencies surrounding the reporting about the decision with Larry. Was that your decision? Did he come to you and said, it, was it a mutual thing? Like, I, I don't know that I ever really received any clarity with how that all went down. Well, you know, I know that's something everybody wants to do. It's just Larry, Larry and I just met pretty extensively after the end of the season. And then we met and we met again. And I think it just became clear that, you know, maybe some of the things I felt needed to get better improved, he felt were in a different place. And it was kind of one of those things we just kind of, you know, I know people want to know more than that. It's just we kind of shook hands and just realized we were at this place. Sure, yeah. I'm not suggesting at all he he wanted to leave. You know, I just think he knew that if I felt that way and he felt differently, it was going to be hard. It was just, you know, all I know is this. He looked me right in the eye, shook my hand and said, I just really wish you the best of luck and I really wish this university the best of luck. So, you know, that says a lot about his character. Before we say you lose, um, I just thought it was so fun. I, and I fall in love with our athletes in the Olympics. Every cycle, I just I consume the Olympics. I know the ratings are way down and the stuff with COVID in Tokyo is a little bit um, uh, problematic and, and causes some interruptions. But Michaela's story is phenomenal. Like she was getting on a plane. She was coming home. She thought her career was over. Simone Biles steps aside. She steps in and she, she gets a silver in the vault. What was that like to watch? Well, just anyone that's been around Michaela just knows how hard she's worked and, and the odds that she's just beaten. And, you know, you never want to see an athlete go through what Simone went through. Um, but the neat thing is the two of them are so close that, that it was almost joy with, with Simone. It'd be interesting to really hear from Michaela about how that all went down, but, but just so proud of her and, and, and neat. I just saw a video of her coming into Phoenix. I think it was yesterday, the day before and all the people at the airport and, you know, she deserves that. I mean, she, she gave us everything and more to come here. And I know she had another year to come back. She was really thoughtful about it. And she and Tom Varden really talked about it, but she'll now go on the tour, you know, with the gold medal tour and she'll be on there and she'll be on her way in her life. So just a really proud moment, not only for her, but for the University of Utah gymnastics program. Tell me if you have time to answer this. If you don't, we'll save it for next time. What do you got? It's a mental health question. Yes. So it could be, it could take a minute, but um, I think this younger generation gets it in a way that we probably don't. Because I would imagine you and I were kind of raised, I was raised to be a competitor. I was raised to play. I hated getting subbed out. I hated not playing. And so, you know, when you have that as the background for context, when you hear Simone Biles, who had a chance to win probably five or six other gold medals, say that she can't do it, certainly there's part of you that goes, wow, that seems like a missed opportunity. But ultimately what I'm learning from this younger generation is, and, and I so badly wish this is the way it was back in the day. So guys like Richard Dumas and Roy Tarpley and Todd Marinovich had space to say, hey, I'm not okay, as opposed to drinking and drugging, and then suddenly their lives are over. Like Roy Tarpley's dead. Um, Todd Marinovich could have been a phenomenal NFL quarterback. So how have you, as an athletic department and the steward of and the leader, kind of handled some of these situations? Because it is a new world now, and these kids aren't afraid to speak up and say, hey, I'm not okay. I need help. Well, let me, just, let me just tell you straight up at University of Utah. It's the best way I think I can answer your question. You know, we went from one full-time uh, psychologist on our staff, and now we have five because that's the right thing to do. Right. Okay, that's great. You can have these professionals working there, but if they're sitting at their desk twiddling their thumbs and no one's seeing them, that's a problem. We have seen a slow build over the last few years of our students being very open 
to getting the help they need. And we're not talking about visualizing victory here type psychologists. We're talking about the real deal. Let's get your life in a place where you can get up and feel good and attack your day, right? Here's the thing. We've been preaching for three years, and I know Dr. Hill must have done it as well, that we need to get to a place like you do now. What happens when you break your elbow? What do you do? You know what to do. Your trainer, you work together, you go to a doctor, you get it fixed, you rehab, and you go. We've been talking about this for a couple of years. Let's get the same place on mental health. Let's get the stigma out of there. Let's get you healthy. I am so proud of our students. We are seeing utilization of these, these, these folks in a, in a profound manner and, frankly, an effective manner. Incredible mental health team. And I am convinced that some of the competitive success we've been having, along with our graduation rates that are soaring now up to 93 94%, and GPAs at around 3.4, is a direct result of these students getting the help that they need. They come in with pressures, man. Some of them are coming in first generation, uh, and they're and they're just they have to succeed, right? And they've they've made it here. They're the two percent that are competing uh, with a scholarship or a power five. It's less. They've made it. Well, now the pressure to succeed, and you can see it. So I'm with you. I, I don't think it was like this in our business five years ago. I remember at a former school that I worked at in the Pac-12 at a point five guy doing mental health. Wow. That same school has four guys now. Um, and we're seeing all of our kids, race, socioeconomic utilizing. So I'm probably more proud of that team than any group. And the stigma is slowly going away. We've got a lot of work, work to do, but man, that's our obligation. You know, these are kids. So I'm with you. And, and i disappointed in some of the reactions, Simone. I think as we all sort of learn, learning, it's the Steve Sachs thing is what it is. Any Dodger fan growing up, yeah. you know, what happens? Steve can't, it's the same thing that happened to her. But um, I think a lot of people are probably thinking, okay, that's not the right thing. Let's act the right way. And I think we're going to see more and more of that going forward. Well, look, I can't thank you enough. I know you got to go. Um, I've told you this before. Even if I didn't have this job, Utah Athletics, it means something to me. And so uh, I, I appreciate your commitment and all you've done for not just the school and the athletic department, but in the community, too. You always have a home here. You know that if you want to pop in. So stay safe. Be well. Thanks, Mark. Thanks. Appreciate you. You can check out any time you want, but you can never leave. <laughs> there he is. Mark Harlan, athletic director for Utah Big Eagles fan. An Atlanta Braves A-list season ticket membership is more than just season tickets at great prices. It's a year-round experience full of perks, event invites, and benefits that take you beyond the game on the field. It's getting to know your usher on a first-name basis and receiving exceptional service from your personal representative. It's feeling like you're a part of the team. Truist Park is where you belong, and 2022 A-list season ticket memberships are available now. To view all the benefits available to A-list members, visit braves.com A-list. 90 Day is going tropical on the new Discovery Plus original series, Love in Paradise, the Caribbean. It's a vacation love story where sun, surf, and seduction collide. Four Americans are traveling back to the exotic islands where they hope their sexy romances can turn into forever. Love in Paradise, the Caribbean, a 90-day story. Streaming now only on Discovery Plus. Start your free trial. Terms apply. episode please leave us a review on itunes
Welcome to the Business Model Basics Podcast, the show where we share one thing that we've learned with you. I'm your host, Ben Gabriel. Hey, everyone. I hope your summer is in full swing. It's already August, you know, middle of the summer, which probably means that before we know it, winter will be here. So if any of our listeners that work for Toro or Husqvarna, we are still looking for that snowblower podcast sponsor. So please do reach out to the pod to get in touch if you're interested in sponsoring. Before the winter time, get ahead of that. So I just got back home from a week-long trip to Michigan to visit uh, a lot of family and friends. And if you're wondering, yes, we drove from Colorado to Michigan. My wife and my daughter were with me this time around, so I wasn't solo. My daughter is an excellent traveler. We do drive through the night. And we've stopped before on the way, but we just drive through the night now and we get there faster. My daughter's a real good traveler and she sleeps and everything. So long trip, but a smooth trip. Um, It was a blast getting to see everybody. My daughter got to play with her cousins. She has several cousins, at least, that she doesn't see, but a time or two per year, something like that. So she got a lot of good quality time in playing with that group. I got to hang out with family, friends. Uh, my wife has a lot of family in the area. I saw some of my family, although I have a, just a little bit of family there. I also got three bike rides in. I probably talked about biking a little bit in past podcasts. Got an absolute ton of mosquito bites on my legs, which is uh, probably pretty common to Michigan there, especially where I was riding. Rode a couple trails that I haven't ridden in, in 15 years or so, maybe more. And getting back out on them was a lot of fun. I'd definitely forgotten some of the turns I had to make. So I had to stop, get my bearings, time or two, take a look at the map. Definitely went the wrong way on one trail for a while before realizing my mistake. But I did get settled back in. Lots of good times on the trip. That's my point. Um, So one morning, though, I went with one of my oldest friends to his newly built office. Um... My friend and two of his colleagues started an engineering company about 20 years ago at this point. I still remember more than 20 years ago being over at his place and him saying, hey, come down into my basement. And I went down there with him and he had a whole bunch of boxes of different pieces of equipment that he was storing, getting ready to, that he needed for the business, that he needed to start the business. And I still remember him talking about that. And showing me the equipment, I didn't really know what I was looking at, but he was getting ready to start that company way back then. Today, the company has like 25 employees and they're doing great. He took me over to their new building, like I said, it was a Sunday morning, so there was nobody else there. Uh, Brand new, two stories, very open, multiple conference rooms very modern feel. It just felt like a really nice place to be and a really nice place to get work done. Everything was new and organized. Outside of the work area, back part of the building, they even have a lot of space to have their own gym area with weights and a workout space. And I think he's getting ready to put up a punching bag and there's one of those sleds that you can push. There's free weights He honestly probably just has just as much, if not more equipment than some actual gyms. Um, But 
you know, we, we headed out after being there for, gosh, I don't know, maybe half an hour walking around. He was telling me a lot about what's going on in the space and everything. And the best way that I can describe leaving their office, going out the front door, locking it up again, getting back into his car, was that I really just felt inspired, you know, and I didn't drive over there with him saying, I, you know, I'm, I can't wait to be inspired, but I was, I was inspired by my friend and, and all the hard work that he and his partners and everyone at his business has accomplished. And I could just, there was nobody there for me to see, but I could just see that clearly manifested in this new space that they have to be in and work in. I was inspired by him building a successful business. It was just really cool. So after we left, you know, that's kind of my lead in here. But after we left, we went to pick up his son who's in high school. And there is a golf course nearby and his son's taken up golf. My buddy has too a little bit. And and they're, they both, I think they both do golf lessons, but his son had a golf lesson that morning. And it just lasted about 30 minutes just about that time that we were there at the office. You know, this was a combo trip, drop his son off at the golf lesson and we get to tour his building. And his son popped uh, back into the car after the lesson. And I believe it was on chipping and putting. Uh, I'm not a golfer. I'm also not a fisherman, but that's something we covered in a previous episode. Um, but my friend who's also gotten lessons from the same golf coach said, and he was really just making conversation that the coach spends a lot of time on fundamentals. You know, right, getting to the core things that you need to get right probably before you can or should move on to what are probably, you know, just really important things too, but more advanced things. It just seems like total common sense, right? Focusing on the fundamentals. I'm not going to talk about the fundamentals of different sports and things like that. I can say that I, I golf like once a year or once every couple years, and I go out there and I average about eight shots on every single hole because I sure as heck don't have the golf fundamentals down. I can tell you that. I can promise you that. And golf is certainly for me just not one of those things that you go out and do every once in a great while, and you're like, oh man, I, I just picked this up again. I'm just great at this. It's just so natural to me. Um, it's not, and for a variety of reasons, but certainly I don't have those fundamentals down. I've never committed to practicing to get better and, and working on those things. And I think we hear a lot from people like that. Yeah, work on the fundamentals, work on the fundamentals. It just seems like common sense. And when my friend said that, you know, that the coach works on fundamentals with me, it just really hit me. Um, so here's the one thing I've learned. Build a strong foundation for your business. Strengthen the fundamentals so that you can build upon them. If your foundation is shaky, if there are gaps, then you really need to fix those things first. And I think that you'll be glad that you did. Uh, Michael Jordan, one of the greatest golfers of all time, right? He has a few quotes attributed to him. But one of them is, get the fundamentals down and the level of everything you do will rise. And if you Google like quotes on fundamentals, which I did, you're going to see a lot of different quotes like that from a lot of people that are famous people and they've got quotes on the fundamentals. We talked an episode or two 
about ideal clients, identifying and working to serve the clients that you are best at serving, your ideal clients, we would say is absolutely a foundational or a fundamental part of your business model. But right alongside that, you know, who you're serving as a firm, another foundational element are your services. What services are you providing? We call services products in an effort to push ourselves into thinking of them more as standard things that we sell and do. I do think that the word product has a different connotation than the word service. I'm not saying that the word product is better than the word service, that the word service is better than the word product, but I think there's a different feel when you say product uh, as opposed to when you say service. If I think of something as a product, I think of something that I can put in a box. Usually when you buy something, right, a product, it comes in some kind of a box or some kind of a packaging. Somebody committed to what goes into that thing, then they put it into that package and they put it on a shelf and I sold it. And if I force myself to put something in that box, I'm forcing myself, my business to standardize what we sell. Of course, there are exceptions if we need to handle some clients differently than others. I mean, I get that. We get that. But it feels very good to have a standardized starting point to work from. Five of our business model basics are products. They're client accounting model, payroll model, business tax model, individual tax model, and advisory services model. Five out of our 13 business model basics, there are 13, are products. They're foundational elements to a business model. And absolutely, we can go into a great amount of detail and talk for a long, long time about each one of those products, of course. But foundationally, it starts with defining exactly what services you'll provide that are part of, part of each product area. We could have one service level for a product and we could say these three things, we do them, this is our product. It's our client accounting product. We could create multiple bundles. We may say, hey, these are the three things that are part of our base package. And maybe everybody's got to at least buy that. If you want to add in this, you go to our second level product. And if you want to add in this additional thing, you go to our third level product. That's how we bundle things. Alternatively, maybe we create one base service level. And then we have a variety of other add-ons, you know, but the point is that we're defining what we do and hopefully we're defining it in a way that we can sell it to our clients and hopefully we're doing it in plain English so that Joe Small Business Owner, Jane Small Business Owner can understand exactly what we're looking to sell them and they can see the value of it. It's a foundational aspect of our business model. And if we can get those fundamentals of our services down, then we've really created some space to keep making those things better. If we're standardizing those services, I think we've created the freedom to do better and more things with those services, maybe with those clients, once we have those fundamental pieces down that we're looking to sell and provide to them. So, you know, defining what you do and then selling and providing those services, that's your engine. 
keep working on those fundamentals. Keep working to improve how your engine operates, make it more efficient, make it more effective. Be careful about putting the cart before the horse sometimes. And I think we all do this, right? If I'm picking out a, 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 a way to do the service before I've defined what it is that we really want to do. And yeah, these things, they evolve and they grow. And sometimes things sort of feel like they happen at the same time. But if I'm picking up how I want to do something before I really know what I'm doing process-wise, you know, if I'm trying to define the process before I've defined what it is I'm going to sell and do, that becomes hard. The same time, if I'm picking out a technology or a software system that's going to help us provide that service to our client, but I haven't really said, well, you know, this is what we actually do, then there's going to be some obvious pitfalls there. Picking out a technology before we've decided the service that we're going to provide and, you know, what services go into that product um, and even the process that we want to get the work done. Again, those things evolve, but defining what it is that we're actually going to sell and do that's a big foundational starting point. So build your foundation, strengthen your foundation, keep strengthening your foundation. And part of that foundation is identifying the types of clients that you truly want to serve, your ideal clients, and then defining the products that you sell and that you deliver. With a strong foundation, then you can confidently grow and scale. So the last segment of the show is one thing that I'm looking forward to. It's getting internet back. On our trip to Michigan, I talked about that. We got back, got back on a Saturday, drove all night. And so, you know, everybody can probably think about exactly how you're feeling. Although I'd say there's there's a jolt of energy and there's a jolt of adrenaline when you're like, hey, the trip's done, we're here. Uh, I probably crashed um, and so did the rest of the family pretty quickly after that, but we're back from our trip. And while we were gone, we had a new roof installed. Um, that was part of the plan. That was the plan. It's something we've been planning for for a while, but the only time or definitely the only immediate time that the roofers could be there was when we were gone. So we were not there and they came on like a Wednesday and a Thursday and they got the new roof up and the, the new roof looks great. Um, I don't know how much longer I will notice the new roof. I think that having a roof, you know, and I, I think that, you know, with the roof up there, you take that for granted after a while. I can't think of too many times where I visited a nice neighborhood, you know, and looked at nice homes and everything and commented later on the quality of the roofs. You know, you don't you hear people say, did you see that roof? Did you see that house? Yes, gorgeous. How about that roof? Um, so the roof looks good, but... My neighbor came over, dropped off the mail, and he said, and this was definitely a leading question in hindsight, but he said, hey, doesn't your internet dish face southeast? And at our house, we get internet wirelessly. There's a dish on the roof, and it faces a tower off in the distance. And that's how we get our internet, and it works quite well. So again, like in hindsight, this was a leading question because I'm like, oh yeah, it does. And I looked up on the roof, no dish, was gone. So that was not something that I was expecting after all that time, getting back, knew the roof was replaced, roof got replaced, looked good, got no dish on top of my house. It means I've got no internet. 
So I walked around the house and no, it wasn't like laying on the ground anywhere. It wasn't laying sideways on the top of the roof. Like they sort of set it there and we're going to come back. It's just gone. And the wires that were running from the dish to the house that ultimately connect to the modem are just kind of tucked behind one of the gutters I could see up high and just laying there. So I've got no internet at my house and I don't even know where my dish is. Now I am in touch with the roofing company right now and I'm really looking to get this sorted out here. So I'll probably have an update hopefully on the next podcast. I know everyone will be on the edge of your seat wondering what is the mystery of the missing internet dish from your roof? Well, I hope to have an answer to the mystery here on the next podcast. So I'll keep you posted on this one, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. And hello again from WJ Live, powered by the Western Journal. I'm Josh Manning, Deputy Managing Editor for Assignment here at the Western Journal. Joining me on WJ Live today is uh, Tara Snyder, intern, soon to be promoted to full-time employee. And joining me from the other side of the country somewhere, I'm not sure which side, is our uh, roving reporter and correspondent, Cameron Arcand. Cameron, welcome. Thank you. And we want to thank you and welcome you for joining us today on uh, Friday. Thank you for wrapping up your work week with WJ Live. We're going to give you some great content this afternoon, as I hope we always do. We've got three pieces we want to talk with you about. Uh, We will be talking about uh, uh, Kamala Harris taking a significant tumble in in the polls. Her approval rating is terrible. That's going to be coming up in just a minute. We're also going to, and that's coming from Tara. Cameron will be talking with us about the eviction moratorium or lack of a moratorium and what that means. Uh, but first off, I'm going to kick us off with a quick discussion about uh, the Capitol Police officers who were involved in the incursion and uh, some information out of Chicago. Now, as you know, another police officer, as you may know, another police officer who was involved in the incursion, a Capitol Police officer, uh, has committed suicide, and that is tragic. Uh, a lot of people, especially on the left, are pointing the finger at Trump supporters and at conservatives and at Republicans, saying, look, really, you're to blame for this. You guys are the ones who fomented an insurrection and uh, apparently tried to take over the country. It's not clear that Anybody tried to take over the country, uh, but they're saying that it is uh, that is evidence that these people committed suicide, and it is uh, the responsibility. The responsibility can be laid on Trump. Uh, however, we have police officers coming out and disputing that right now. There was a very interesting piece in the Daily Mail earlier today, talking about S- Sergeant Betsy Bratner Smith. Betsy Bratner Smith is the spokesperson for the National Police Association. And she says that police suicides are actually a wider matter. Uh, 
she says she and other cops have, and I'm, I'm quoting from the mail right now, have been become disgusted with how Democrats in Washington and, quote, the media have politicized the deaths of uh, the Capitol officers who have committed suicide, four officers who responded to the riot and have since killed themselves. According to Bratner Smith, the mental health of police officers around the country is reaching a boiling point after relentless vilification by the public and the media in the wake of George Floyd's death. She says there are prominent Democrats only focusing on January 6th and those officers involved and prominent Republicans who are saying nothing. They say they back the blue, but they're not doing a good job of it. Ultimately, I have to blame the American media. The American media is not telling the truth about American law enforcement, the American media since Ferguson on. I've talked to the media every day. They have constantly vilified and lied about American law enforcement. So you can couple this with a story now out of Chicago about increasing numbers of Chicago police officers retiring and even retiring early before they can qualify for their pensions. So they're losing potentially uh, years and years worth of investment in their pension program just to get out. Uh, in the in just the first six months of the year of the year, 367 officers have retired. CBS Two in Chicago spoke to a recently retired officer who gave some insight into the rising numbers. Uh, that officer said, "People see us as the enemy, and we're not." All we're doing is trying to help the people of the community, the city of Chicago. So, Tara, it seems to me then that it's, it's really kind of cheap political publicity for the left to come out and say, oh, look, these people were heroes at the Capitol, and now four of them have killed themselves. Let's blame Trump. It's really, really cheap to say that after they've spent over a year just just raking police over the coals every chance they get. What do you think? It is absolutely ridiculous just how the narrative overall, the left has changed it just time and time again because they ultimately want to appease the most amount of people. And we saw after the death of George Floyd that it was all cops are bad, the system needs to be defunded, we need to completely start over. And then they kind of realized that that was a losing narrative going into 2022 and thinking about being reelected. Yeah. And they're backing away from it. And now that they are done using those police officers at the Capitol as political tools, they're tossing them aside again and they're not actually caring about about what implications all of this media coverage and all of this attention has brought to them. Because I assure you that those officers were not expecting to become centerpieces at this media firestorm. Yeah, yeah. Cameron, you've been arrested at the Capitol several times in the past. Not really. Uh, but, but Cameron, you do. We spent a lot of time talking about this. What is your take on the media's assessment of these suicides? Well, it's a tough time to be a cop in America right now. And I think what the media did kind of starting last summer was they validated, whether intentionally or not intentionally, the most extreme solutions to policing and criminal justice reform that were out there. Now, there were a lot of people who were saying, let's reform the system. Let's not tear down the system and build up some social justice buzzword um, type of police force. That's what not not what the majority of people were saying, but the media was complicit in equipping the most extreme voices and validating what they were saying. Now, I'll say this, too, is that 
we're going to start seeing issues and we're already seeing it in major cities where the crime is rising and there is nobody that actually wants to step up to the plate because they're so concerned about actually going into the own community that they serve. We saw this in Portland. They recreated their um, gun violence prevention team. They rebranded it to make it seem something more left friendly. And only four out of the 14 slots needed have actually been filled because mm. no one in that police department wants to do that job. So what we're going to be seeing is we're going to see a lot of kind of the center left who kind of went along and validated a lot of what their more extreme people were saying. We're going to see them eating a lot of crow come 2022, come 2024, when we're seeing high rising crime in places like Portland and New York and Chicago, where there's where we're seeing the consequences of what defunding, not reforming, what full-on defunding and vilifying the police does. So I, that's a great take on that, Cameron. I want to follow up with you on it. We remember right after uh, November 3rd, there were all of these discussions. Well, there was that leaked uh, Democrat conference call where people were complaining and saying, look, we have got to get away from this defund movement. It is absolutely destroying us. And we did see them back off of it a little bit. But uh, to the points you just made, uh, it seems to be still be a fairly strong movement. Do you think it's going to pick up steam going into 2022? Um, probably not in competitive legislative districts. I'll say that. I think you're going to see a lot of moderate Democrats pushing very, very hard to be like, oh, no, we're not. We don't want to actually defund the police. But then you have people like Cori Bush saying in the same sentence yesterday, not only do we want to defund the police, we need I need my own private security because I'm more important than the rest of you with my two hundred thousand dollar a year plus salary. I am better than the rest of you. I can get my own private security because oh. I think the private sector does a better job and we should defund the police. Now, I didn't know Cori Bush was such a big libertarian, but I do know this. She is a hypocrite. And we're going to see a lot of this issue of these competitive candidates in these districts distancing themselves away from people like Cori Bush who are saying things like this because this is not what suburbs want. This is not what suburban right. parents, this is not what suburban students, this is not what anybody living in any area outside of these cities actually wants. And then you have people in these big cities regretting it immediately after. They're wondering, oh, well, we just went out and protested to defund the police. Why is there shootings every week in D.C.? In my neighborhood that I'm paying 2500 a month for, why was there a shooting at the Washington Nationals game. People are going to finally start asking themselves these questions, but they're not actually going to wake up to the fact as to the reason why. So, Tara, what explains then this this idea that people like Cori Bush, she has her own private security force. Nancy Pelosi has her own big, beautiful wall. Uh, what explains this double standard that we continue to see between the the um, politically powerful left and the rest of us, the, the poor little plebs who are left out there uh, with defunded police departments, etc.? Quickly. Yeah. So I think it comes down to two things. Number one is people probably run 
run for Congress with the idea that they're going to be the new person in Congress who understands what it's like to be the person at home, who understands what it's like to live the American dream and whatever. But that all changes as soon as you go viral on Twitter, you start to get a following, you start to be enthralled in the AOC squad. And I think that that ultimately clouds her judgment. And I think that can happen on the Republican side, too. But I just don't think that it's been seen on the same level that it happens on the Democratic side, because that's the only way in my mind that you can have a two hundred thousand dollar uh, security detail and just think, you know what, we're going to defend the police yeah. overall. Yeah. Uh, it, Cameron. Shifting gears now uh, to to the eviction moratorium for forever. You've been able in this country. You've been able to kick people out who don't pay their rent. Then COVID hit and you couldn't do it. Uh, Then the moratorium expired and the president said he didn't have the power to extend it. Then the next day he said, oh, heck, I do have the power to extend it. Uh, Tell us what is going on uh, with the eviction moratorium. Well, for starters, a lot of Democrats are now having this misconception that landlords are all wearing a top hat, smoking a cigar and walking around with a cane. And they don't understand that landlords are people, too. Now, kind of using that as a jumping point, last year we had the CDC sign and authorize an eviction moratorium, which basically said that if you're not paying your rent or if there's some sort of other issue, your landlord can't throw you out of your your um, apartment or house or wherever. Now, this was actually set to this was set to expire. And then they reissued it. Um, President Biden reissued it after push pushes from far left Democrats like AOC and Cory Bush. And the issue that we saw with this was the fact that um, it wasn't constitutional to start with. The executive branch did not have the power to authorize something like this on the federal level. Now, we're seeing a county in Ohio in particular fight back against this. It was the Franklin County Municipal Court, which is kind of more towards the Cincinnati area. They were saying that um, because they did not have the authority, they struck this down. And they said, if you're a landlord in our area, you can go ahead and you can evict these people. Now, to make matters even worse, we had President Joe Biden basically admitting that this was legally shady. I think we have a video or a tweet right now kind of going into what he said about this. Um, He said, I can't guarantee you that the court won't rule that we don't have the authority, but at least we'll have the ability to. If we have to appeal to keep this going for a month at least, I hope longer. So So who cares if we break the law as long as we get what we want? Exactly. The president of the United States is openly admitting to doing something legally questionable, but he he doesn't seem to care about that right now. So I want to bring that to you guys. Do you think that the Supreme Court will strike this down? Uh, Yeah, I think so. It's unfathomable to me how the the executive branch itself, but the CDC in particular, is going to wade into financial and property rights issues of just on the the weight of their name and the fiat that goes with that. Uh, I don't think there's any way that will stand. If it does stand, it means that essentially private property, as we've noted in the U.S., is, is over because you don't really own something if you can't control it, if you can't say what happens on it, if you can't say who uses it and who doesn't use it. You don't really own it in any real sense, though your name may be on a deed. 
essentially at that point the state owns it. And what this will do is effectively uh, is effectively nationalize at least part of the private real estate market in uh, in the United States, which is which is unbelievable. And by the way. Uh, I think this is actually the real problem behind the lack of employment out there right now. You know, a, a couple of $3,000 checks from Biden, you know, those aren't going to get you just that far in life. Life is more expensive than that. But what will help you a long way is if you've got a home, if you have a roof over your head, but you don't have to pay rent at all. You know, rent, mortgage payments, those are the most expensive parts of, of most of our budgets. If you don't have to pay that and there's no risk of getting kicked out when you don't, then, uh, you know, you can go a long time on unemployment and a long time on food stamps uh, and, and be perfectly fine. I think that's why Denny's down the street absolutely can't get people to work there. I think that's why when I go to Starbucks in the morning, uh, sometimes they don't have the muffin I want because they don't have people in the warehouse to deliver them. Uh, so, I, yeah, I think the Supreme Court will strike this down. I also think uh, it's a massive threat to private property. And on top of that, it's probably what's behind the dearth of employment happening right now. What do you uh, what do you think, Tara? Oh, yeah, I think it's a bunch of uh, different issues. But just to even go off of that even more. Uh, beyond the eviction moratorium, which I think you're right, rent plays the largest role in that. Ilhan Omar just this week or last week introduced legislation to have a monthly check for $1,600 or something crazy like that and $600 for your child. And so people who are saying that this is all because of COVID and all of this stuff, these are not unprecedented times anymore. It's actually probably completely precedented because we've been living in it for a year and a half. If you're, Spanish flu. You have no excuse to say, oh, I, had, I didn't see this coming. I didn't know what was happening. There's absolutely no excuse anymore. People need to be adults and get themselves together and realize that they're responsible for themselves and that the government isn't going to be the one who's responsible for you your entire life. And you're right on the money with that. There are I think somewhere around 10 million open jobs right now. I don't really see unless you are so immunocompromised or whatever the deal is right now that's keeping someone from working. What is the excuse not to work right now? There is so little of an excuse right now not to work where you can go to pretty much any restaurant and retail store and they have a now hiring sign up. So I think you're right, right on with that. But do you guys think that doing this even originally when it was considered unprecedented times, do you think that was appropriate then? Or do you think just fully on principle, this should have never happened? I will say that I think that there should have been a way, way more detailed vetting process for the people who did receive money, because I know people in my personal life who are receiving checks and were going, I didn't need this and ended up donating them to charity and things like that. And good for those people for doing that. Um, I don't know necessarily if I'll say that one way or the other, it shouldn't have happened at all, because I do think that there can be some instances like small businesses and things to that extent. However, I do think that it did create an unhelpful precedent for American society, because I know that other college students were ecstatic at receiving $1,000 or so, because in college that did a lot of great great things for you, but you also didn't have any chance of, of um, 
probably seriously being injured, becoming ill or anything like that. And so I think that there are some benefits, but I think that the costs dramatically outweigh any of the benefits that would have happened. What do you think, Josh? Uh, I don't think we would have had to do this had the federal government not intervened, had federal and state governments not intervened in the first and uh, at first and shut down the economy. Uh, there was no reason why people couldn't continue to go to work. There was yeah. no reason why people couldn't continue to earn a living. But as happens so often with government intervention, they intervened in one place, tried to shut things down to stop the spread. And that caused, that caused unemployment to skyrocket. It caused people to uh, uh, it, it, um, cut paychecks. And so all of a sudden, people can't afford rent. And it's not their fault. It's the fault of the federal government and the state governments for how they bungled dealing with COVID. So then the federal government has to come in on the back end and say, well, we screwed that up. Now a bunch of people are going to get evicted. Well, gosh, I guess we better tell them we better set things such that they can't get evicted. Now, what that does is that causes the people who are property owners. And by the way, if you're renting a house, you're probably not renting it from George Soros. You're probably renting it from somebody who lives one street over from you or one neighborhood over from you. There are lots of people who have their own rent homes and they're essentially the same class as the people renting them. Yeah, I do. And they've got bills to pay too. I think too. I think it's a really important point to note that it is kind of a government created disaster yeah, because it is. had we just worked 100%. through COVID, it would have been difficult because yes, there was a, a virus and we weren't sure how deadly it was at that time. But when you shut down the entire economy yeah. for two solid weeks and then two months, a year, six months, it's absolutely yeah. insane. Yeah, and and then did, and we, we've got to move on here, but and then did the stupidest thing possible, which was try to uh, try to isolate and quarantine the healthy, and all that did was give the sick and those who are most at danger from the disease a little bit of false security that they could go out there, well, people are wearing masks, you know, they're rubbing everything down, I guess I can kind of go out and chance it and stuff. Those are the people who should have been quarantined while the rest of us went about our business, kept the economy going, and provided... I, Actually provided a way to give charitably to these people. Uh, it, the economy lost trillions of dollars, and there's no telling how much of that we actually could have used to help those who needed it, uh, and, and certainly including those who are in nursing homes who people like uh, like Andrew Cuomo uh, killed. So that is uh, that is good. That's good discussion, Cameron. Uh, Tara, I want you to take it away on Kamala. You noticed something with her uh, her approval ratings recently, and uh, I know you even have a special graphic for us. Oh, yeah. Talk well, to us. Um, so at least she has 100% disapproval in our office, <laughs> but America, more broadly, she's only sitting at a 45 or 44% approval rating across America, which is really bad because since February, this has gone down 13%, which is a really dr- drastic nosedive. And the last time a vice president was this unpopular was back in 1970. So I guess you could call uh, Kamala a new uh, Y2K record breaker, um, which is great for her if she wants to have something on her resume. (laughs) But the, the main thing here is she's actually blaming 
her predicament, not on her lack of policy, not lack on not on her lack of charisma. No, no, no. She's blaming sexism. And so her entire staff is absolutely panicking right now going, oh, my gosh, how do we cover this? How do we change it? And so what they're doing is they're blaming the media. And I think that is just hilarious, considering that when Trump had any gripes with the media, that it was this, oh, you're out to get them. Oh, you're out to do this. But now it's Mm, for feminism. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyways, we do have a clip for you guys to watch. The View covered this yesterday. And of course, it was a disaster as usual. Well, let's see. What is different about her that we haven't seen before? What could it be? Oh, that's right. She's a woman and she's black. I almost forgot. Rising? Well, it's not surprising because it is all about race and gender, right? As Joy, as Joy mentioned, what's different about this one? What is different about this particular vice president? Um, listen, she's become, I think, the GOP foil on the campaign trail. There's a lot of faux outrage out there. So, of course, because they're all a bunch of leftists, that their first thing that comes to their mind is gender and race. How ridiculous do you think that is, Josh? Uh, No more ridiculous than you would expect from The View and people on the left absolutely every day. It It is truly hilarious to listen to the people who see nothing but skin color, sexual orientation, um gendered mental status, whatever we're going to end up calling transgenderism as it, as it manifests in the mind. Um, they see nothing but that, which, and all that is, is a throwback to just traditional Marxism instead of, uh, essentially instead of a class struggle. Now they've, they've created a race struggle. They've created a sex struggle. Uh, and, and that's all it is. They really are the ones who see race. The, Conservatives, the best I can tell, and I've been involved in the conservative movement my entire life, the best I can tell, conservatives really do want everyone to do better uh, and want the market to sort out who does better. Uh, they, they want the people who do the best to rise to the top, uh, and they recognize that a rising, rising uh, 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 tide raises all ships whatever that expression is. Anyway, um, the left, however, uh, you know, they are interested in pitting people against each other and really trying to get people to go at it uh, with each other to, I think, distract people from really the accretion of power at the top, which is what leftism is is all about. Uh, You know, it's also hard to say this after, you know, the media has no room to talk about this after what they did to Sarah Palin. Uh, you know, they just just destroyed her day after day after day. There are still lies about Sarah Palin that are accepted as truths because of things that were said on Saturday Night Live, you know, 15 years ago mm-hmm. or however, what, 13 years ago. Um, so it, it's, you know, they have no room to talk about this. It's their game, though, it's their playbook. It's what you expect from them. Oh, yeah. And just to go back to when Kamala was campaigning, you know, when she ran for president, uh, she dropped out of the race really early. And so I have I have this from Politico. A sharp rise in the polls did not last long, with Harris getting into fifth place and, registra- and registering in the single digits by September. When she dropped out Tuesday, her real clicks 
Her real clear politics national polling average was hovering above 3%. So even when she was on her own, she just wasn't a likable candidate. And again, she was running against all these leftists. And Tara, what I want to know is why all of those sexist Democrats who didn't approve of her, the 97.5% of Democrats who didn't love on her, why are they getting off easy? That's what I want to know. But that question will never be answered. Oh, and yeah, of course it me, won't sorry. be. No, no problem. <laughs> Anyways, um, I actually happened to get some exclusive footage from uh, Kamala Harris's campaign because what they actually did when they were branding her was just uh, rebranding an even less likable Hillary Clinton. And you can it's see that here. a bold move. This exclusive video here, folks. And give you a princess. Oh, my gosh. Wow, she just pops right up. Oh my gosh. Yeah, completely rebranded just as Kamala. So That is horrifying. Yeah, that absolutely. is absolutely horrifying. Yeah, the the thing they don't want to accept is that she is supremely unlikable and an unbelievable hypocrite. Uh you, you know, you if you want to look at somebody who has uh, according to the left standards done really badly by African Americans, it's Kamala. She had no problem throwing African-Americans in jail left and right. But all of a sudden she runs for office and she's untouchable and she's she's uh, their great hope. It's it's absurd. Oh, yeah. Cade, what are your thoughts? And then even, or yeah, even kind thoughts? of building off of that, if, if they want to if they kind of want to start an issue with why Kamala Harris has such low approval ratings, I'll give them a reason, a policy reason. The border. She was put in charge to help do certain things with the border. What has she done? Nothing. She went on a vanity trip to El Paso. She went to Guatemala. She said, oh, I've never been to Europe when asking if she would go and visit the border a few months back. She has done absolutely nothing to improve the quality of this country. And that's why her approval ratings are so low. And it's a reflection on the administration as a whole. But I think the biggest issue with Um, with Kamala Harris is the fact that I think Kamala Harris is more deliberate in her actions. She's very calculating. Um, She's very calculating. More willful in her ignorance with how she handles policy mistakes. I I think Joe Biden, I got to cut him some slack with with his age and just certain things. I think there's some, a lot of his gaffes can kind of be, kind of be more questionable. But with Kamala Harris, she knows what she's doing. She's playing politics. She's very, very alert with everything she's doing. And Americans can see right through it. Yeah, I mean, she knows, she clearly knows what her long game is because she wants to be a politician, but she can't answer any questions that are asked of her. And um, just to be super helpful, I have uh, made a collection of my favorite Kamala Harris gaffes. And so we can bring that up because it just proves how dislikable she truly is. Feel the Trump tax cuts. Uh, Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. Well, <laughs> I'm speaking. The important is you said the truth. If you don't mind letting me finish, it's the crazy. We can have a conversation, okay? Do you have any plans to visit the border? I, at some point, you know, I, we are going to the border. We've been to the border. So you, this whole, this whole, this whole thing about the border. We've been to the border. We've been to the border. You haven't been to the border. I, and I haven't been to Europe. And I, I mean, I don't. I don't. I'm just, She she has the same energy as like when Hillary said 
Pokemon, go to the polls. And can you imagine if, if on our show we talked to you like this, it's like, a like this, like the crazy look? It, it would just be absolutely ridiculous. Well, I'm curious about something, uh, and we can wrap up on this question. Cameron, if the election were held next Tuesday, if 2024 rolled around next Tuesday, what in the world would the Biden-Harris administration run on? They're not Trump. That's all they have. That's all <laughs> they still have. That is still to this day, that is their strategy. They are opposition. They still think, oh, because we are not the last administration, people still have not gotten over the fact that Trump is not the president anymore. Whether they are on the pro Mm. side, whether they supported him or are against him, they haven't moved on yet. They haven't moved on. We have not moved on as a country yet. So if the election were held next Tuesday, they would still run on the fact that they are not the last administration. And let's say the opponent was DeSantis. They would still say the same They'll run thing. Against they Trump. would just yeah. conflate yeah. the two. It'll never end. They would conflate yep. the two. All right, it is quick. always going to be about it. All right, quickly, Tara, you get the last word. What would they run on? Do they have anything? They have absolutely nothing. So it's probably going to be something that we're the party of acceptance as usual. Oh, we're doing this thing. And oh, there was an insurrection on the Capitol. I actually think the insurrection would the insurrection would be the main thing that they hit on because they'll go on. Oh, since the Civil War, this has never happened. And these are people, dangerous maniacs. And that would be what it is. Yeah. 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 I think that's I think that's it. They have no accomplishments uh, to run on. And. Hopefully it stays that way. Uh, okay, guys, thank you so much. We appreciate you. Cameron, thanks. For, where are you, Cameron? I'm in Nashville. You're in right Nashville. Now. All right. All right. In the heart of country music. Uh, those I know those are your people, Cameron. Uh, thank you for being with us today. Tara, thanks for being here. Uh, you who are watching, thank you so much for wrapping up your week with us on WJ Live. We appreciate it. Be sure to uh, click the subscribe button if you're watching on YouTube. After you click that, a little bell is going to show up. Click that bell so you'll get notified every time we go live. Also, if you feel led to support us in a more direct way, you can always go to westernjournal.com slash join. That's westernjournal.com slash join. There are ways there you can partner with us to help fund the uh, expensive, uh, very expensive journalism that we do here, but we provide you for free uh, because we feel like we're led to do it. We don't have a billionaire backing us. We're a family-owned company. And uh, if you feel God leading you in that direction, we would love your help. If you don't, though, just please continue to read and watch. We appreciate you being with us. All right. So for Cameron, for Tara, for everybody in the booth, everybody at uh, WJ, I'm Josh Manning. Uh, This is WJ Live. We'll be back next week, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. We'll see you Monday. Thanks. WJ Live is a show powered by the Western Journal, a Christian conservative news site equipping readers with the truth. The Western Journal is free to read, but if you'd like to support us even further, you can subscribe to our site and receive exclusive benefits like ad-free reading, discounts on our merch at the Patriot Depot, and even an equipping readers with the truth mug. Subscriptions start as low as $5 a month. To subscribe, go to westernjournal.com backslash join. Your support helps us in fighting big tech censorship across all platforms. Thank you for listening. See you next time.